0: You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Common Descent Podcast. This is episode 134, And this episode's topic is sanguivores, Mm. which is a fancy science word that means things that eat blood. Blood. (laughs) This episode, we are going to talk about the blood drinkers, the blood suckers, the blood feeders, the things that make a diet out of eating the blood of other organisms. Yeah. Vampires and such. (laughs) Blood eating is a habit that has evolved over and over and over again across the animals that live on Earth. From the famous stuff like mosquitoes and vampire bats to the weird stuff like vampire snails. That's a thing. We'll talk about that. <laughs> so we're going to talk about what blood eating is, what it entails, what cool behaviors and features have evolved repeatedly as adaptations for feeding on blood. We'll get into the fossil record, of course. We'll get into some evolutionary history. We will be fascinated and a little bit grossed out. Yeah, it, it
1: blood eating is such a cool... like. It leads to such odd, strange, fascinating creatures that are all just a, a little disturbing. It's just a bit unsettling. Yeah,
0: just... Mm, no, sometimes sometimes more than a bit. Yeah, no, that's my blood. <laughs> uh, I made that myself and I'd like to keep it. <laughs> so we are going to talk about all the different facets of blood eating. And as such, we are going to put just a little bit of a content warning up here at the front. We're not going to get into too many gory details. But if you're a person who gets squeamish at talk of blood and things, sucking on your blood and eating blood, we are going to talk a bunch about that.
1: Yeah, it's unavoidable to discuss these animals' interactions with blood. Yes. That's- so if,
0: if you really don't, like, talk about mosquitoes and ticks and mites and leeches and vampire bats, this, this we're, that, there's going to be a lot of that in this episode. <laughs> so just be aware up front. Uh, We're not going to be disgusting, but we're talking about some kind of disturbing stuff. (laughs) But it is disgusting. But it is disgusting, and no one's happy about it. (laughs) (laughs) All that and more once we get into the meat of the episode. But, of course, just like all of our episode topics, this subject was requested by one of our listeners. In this case, Felix requested this topic. Excellent request. Fantastic. Thank you for that. More on that later, but first, let's get through some announcements. As usual, we're going to start our announcements with talking about Patreon. Pa- we have a Patreon. We do. This podcast is supported in full. All the cool stuff we're able to do, all of our science communication efforts, are funded by our supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to support us on Patreon, you, we, we welcome you to do so, and you will be rewarded with goodies. Yes. One of the goodies you can get at a certain level is that we will shout your name out in gratitude on the podcast. This episode, we would like to welcome and thank Mark and Thea. Thanks. Welcome to the Patreon, and thank you so much for your support. If you are a patron, other goodies on Patreon include things like getting to read director's notes, getting some bonus audio content like bonus news, getting to ask us questions, which we answer at the end of each episode. Spoiler alert, we will be answering questions at the end of these episodes. Yep. These days, we're doing Patreon live streams. There will be one shortly after this episode comes out. So keep your eyes and ears open for all of those things. And speaking of bonus stuff, back in January, we did a big old five-year anniversary announcement for the podcast. And one of the big, perhaps the biggest thing that we announced during that time was a bunch of new art. Yes. Our five-year anniversary logo and a bunch of artwork. That is now available on merch on our Zazzle store, Zazzle.com, Common Descent podcast page. The headliners of our new art merch lineup were done by our paleo artist friend Rob Soto. And in celebration of Rob's art and our five-year anniversary, we will be releasing a bonus episode, a chat with Rob, about the process of making the art that we recently put out. Mm Mm-hmm. This will be available to everybody, so if you're interested in hearing some of the behind the scenes, hearing us chat with our paleo artist friend, check it out. It's a fun discussion.
1: Yeah, we actually were able to get into the semi-nitty-gritties of what it's like to make
0: art like, you know, for Rob to make art like this, Mm -hmm. and it's interesting stuff. Very cool stuff. And speaking of going into the process of making that art, if you are a patron, we will also be making the concept art... Of the artwork that we put out, the various stages of production available for our patrons on Patreon. So everyone keep your ears out for that special episode, and patrons, keep your eyes out for that cool concept art.
1: It's really neat.
0: (laughs) And of course, we are celebrating our five-year anniversary, so you can go check out our new merch on the Zazzle store. Art by Rob, art by Anna, our logos, all sorts of cool stuff. We also launched a Common Descent Discord server, link in the description. We also launched a fan art page on our blog also a link to the blog in the description. Every episode there's a blog post afterwards with bonus content and images and links about each topic. Now there's also a fan art page for you to check out all sorts of cool ways for you to engage with common descent stuff. yeah it's
1: it's pretty it's pretty great just to have have so much stuff to share. <laughs> yeah
0: it's a good time <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a bunch of stuff that's new with us. Let's move on to talking about stuff that's new without us. Let's talk about someone else for a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) On to the news. Every episode, we like to start off by discussing some recent news in paleontology evolution-related subjects. Keep everybody up to date with what's going on out in the science world. Will, would you like to start the news?
1: Absolutely. My first news is about a newly named... Species of spinosaur, Ooh. spinosaur dinosaur from Portugal. This is research by Octavio Mateus and Dario Estreviz Lopez in Plus One, and the article is by George Dvorsky in Gizmodo. Link in the blog post. Yes. So, spinosaurids, we had a whole episode about these. Episode 42. These were theropod dinosaurs, so two legged predatory dinosaurs, famous for their long croc esque snouts. That have been interpreted as likely fish eaters or at least water, you know, hunters. Right. Spinosaurus, Baryonyx, Sukamimus, those dinos. This is a new species from this group with new material, but previously discovered, like, this specimen was known a while back but misidentified. This mm. research is re-identifying it. Okay. So this specimen is about 125 million years old from so early Cretaceous. Uh, It was only designated as (laughs) ML-1190. Good old specimen number. All right. Initially discovered 23 years ago in Portugal and was assigned to Baryonyx walkeri. Okay. So still a spinosaurid, but new material from 2020 uh, still seems to be from the same specimen has allowed a more accurate analysis. Uh, This new material includes parts of the mandible, parts of the scapula, so shoulder bones, the pubis, the hip area, uh, one claw from the foot, and several parts of the vertebra. Oh, so a, a much more complete look at a dinosaur. Exactly. Uh, CT scans allowed them to do a, a detailed analysis of the anatomy. They also redid a phylogenetic analysis with this specimen and the group to get an idea of who's related to who. And all that together said, no, this is a... New species and new genus. Oh, not baryonyx. Not baryonyx. This new name is Iberospinus natarioi. Uh, Iberospinus is because it's from the Iberian Peninsula, and natarioi uh, is named after Carlos natario, the discoverer of the specimen. Oh, nice. It has been found to be a sister taxon to baryonyx and the Suchomimus, uh group. So outside of Spinosaurinae, like actual Spinosaurus and their uh, cousins, it doesn't seem to be that different though from the overall group. It's got a lot of the features you'd expect. It seems to have that long snout. The dentary shows, that's the bottom jawbone, shows a high density of vein and nerve openings, a network there that's expected of this group. Like, that's pretty normal for this group. Highly sensitive snouts, perhaps. Uh, But it also showed a unique grouping of nerves in the mandible, the upper jaw, which was notable for this specimen, this species. One of the most interesting things, though, is that morphologically, the analysis showed that it has a mixture of features between more basal and more Later on, spinosaurids. Gotcha. So more ancestral features, as well as more later, more derived. What we call derived features. Exactly. So it has an interesting mix of to its morphology. This, along with the fact that Iberia, the Iberian Peninsula, has shown to be a hot spot for this group, with a number of spinosaurids found there. Several which seem to be endemic to that area, you know, specific to that area. And this includes six of the oldest genera of this group, which is leading potential evidence to that this may be a, the location or close to the location of the origin for this group.
0: Oh yeah, that's pretty cool. That
1: this might be where Spinosaurids really started to either originated or diversified early on. This was an important place in their evolution one way or another. Exactly. And uh, another famous thing about this group is that they're often associated with feeding at the water. Some like Spinosaurus are thought to maybe have been Slightly or semi aquatic, depending on where the research currently is in this very moment, right now, <laughs> the stratigraphy, the the sediment around the specimen does seem to suggest that it would is a lagoon with brackish water. Okay, uh, so this also seems to be one that would have been probably feeding off the water.
0: Right, spinosaurids are often reconstructed or sort of imagined as living somewhere bet- on the spectrum between a crocodile and a heron. Yes. In or near the water, eating aquatic things, spending some amount of time in the water. Always fun to find a new member of an interesting dinosaur group. Also, this is a fun example of how you can find a new species, a new genus of a group that isn't dramatically different. Yeah. It doesn't have some weird feature that sets it apart. It's just different enough to be classified separately, but otherwise probably living and doing very much what all the rest are. Also... Very fascinating insight that we potentially have found a region of the world that was important for this particular group of dinosaurs. Yes. And it also makes me think, and this is going to be a very brief but very niche reference... About the new generation of Pokemon games that they just announced, which <laughs> seem to be taking place in Iberia. And the artists out there who are imagining that Fuecoco, the fire croc starter Pokemon, <laughs> might become Spinosaurus-like in its later evolutions. Then, hey, there's some support for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here for
1: it. That'd be cool. Yeah, no, it's pretty neat. Uh, I did notice one thing when I was reading the, the news article and I was looking up potentially others. is A lot of them would have in the title semi-aquatic dinosaur. Which I found kind of odd, because at least to my knowledge, the current debate on that with like Spinosaurus is, definitely has evidence, but th- I don't know that there's
0: tons of evidence that the others were like swimming. All in all, the Spinosaurids generally are reconstructed as living near water, often eating aquatic mm-hmm. prey. Semi-aquatic has been suggested for Spinosaurus, certainly yes. for potential adaptations of spending lots of time in the water. I don't know that I would call the whole group necessarily semi-aquatic.
1: Yeah, which is the reason I would noted it is because I read that and I was like, oh, interesting. And then went through the article and there was no mention of like aquatic
0: adaptations right in this new specimen. They're saying this is part of a group that is associated with near shore or near water or potentially semi-aquatic habits. Yes. Uh, so it, <laughs> Semi-aquatic as shorthand for Spinosaurids. Yes,
1: exactly. Right. So if, if you get confused in reading, that's that
0: might be part of the reason. <laughs> it is an ongoing, all, way, all the time challenge for journalists, and for anybody who's trying to communicate the science of dinosaurs and other ancient creatures, to find a way in your headline, in your blurb that everybody's going to see first to communicate what kind of animals you're talking about without having to go into details. Yes. It doesn't surprise me at all that a journalist or an editor or whoever it is deciding this was facing this challenge of, well, we can't say a new Spinosaurid because we don't think that enough of our people who are going to see this headline are going to know what that word means off mm-hmm. the top of their head. What is a shorthand way to refer to Spinosaurids and settled upon semi-aquatic dinosaurs? Exactly. Even though that's probably not a totally accurate way to just refer to the whole group. Yes. A cool find, but the kind of cool find that can be tough to write a very short <laughs> headline about. <laughs> <laughs> While well, my bit of news is something that is great for short headlines, this is also a new species, also a reptile, also from the Mesozoic. This is the so far largest known Jurassic pterosaur. Ooh. This is research by Natalia Jagielska, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, et al. in the journal Current Biology, and we'll link in the blog post to an article in National Geographic by Michael Greshko. Pterosaurs are the Mesozoic flying reptiles, your pteranodons and dimorphodons and quetzalcoatluses and such. We also did a whole episode about them, episode 79. Pterosaurs are famous for being very diverse and also for getting extremely large, But the large pterosaurs are restricted to the Cretaceous period. Yes. Pterosaurs show up in the Triassic, but they stay relatively small, and by relatively, you know, not the size of airplanes. (laughs) Manageable. Until the Cretaceous. Generally speaking, pterosaurs before the Cretaceous are estimated to all tend to have a wingspan under two meters. Uh, Two meters, six or seven feet which is a decent size for a flying animal, but not the giants of later.
1: Yeah, that means that the pterosaurs of this time all had wings that were not wider than most adult humans'
0: arm spans. Yes. This study identifies, like your dinosaur, a new genus and species of pterosaur from the middle Jurassic that is larger than expected. Mm. The discovery is a well preserved skeleton from the Isle of Skye in Scotland dates to around 167 million years old, like I said, Middle Jurassic. The discovery includes part of the skull, limb bones, tail, ribs, and vertebrae. It also features a well-enough preserved brain case to get an endocast. (gasps) That is, we have a sense of what the inside of the cranium looks like, especially with the help of CT scanning, which means we can look at the neuroanatomy. And there are some descriptions of what the brain's shape looks like in the paper and how it relates to other pterosaurs, which is pretty cool. Of course, a new genus and species gets a new name. This one is named yark ski Uh The name is not spelled like it should be pronounced that way because it is Scottish Gaelic. Oh, so wow. So to my English reading eyes, and I'm sure many of our listeners, it is very surprising that it is pronounced yark because it's spelled like that. Huh. Well, I'll be. Yep. It's spelled but that's not how it's said york <laughs> scottish gaelic the paper describes that the name has a double meaning it means winged reptile but it's also a reference to the isle of sky because the gaelic name for the island means winged isle
1: oh cool so the name
0: has a little bit of both which is a very cool naming scheme that's fun Yark belongs to the group called the non-pterodactyloids, which, as we discussed in the pterosaurs episode, means not part of this other group. It has a relatively long tail, similar to smaller pterosaurs like Ramphorhynchus. Now, I say smaller. Ramphorhynchus is pretty big for one of the small pterosaurs. Like I said, usually this category of pterosaurs tend to have wingspans under two meters, but Yark is bigger. The wings are incomplete and the skeleton isn't, you know, laid out flat with its arms stretched out. So they do have to estimate the total wingspan. But they do estimate it at being at least two to two and a half meters wingspan. And they also cut into the bones to examine the bone histology, the growth patterns, and found that it was still growing. Oh, wow. At the time of death. This was not fully grown adult. So that would suggest that it would have gotten potentially even bigger two and a half meter wingspan or more, making it the size of some of the largest modern birds, like albatrosses, makes it the largest Jurassic pterosaur known from a well-preserved skeleton. And also, I thought this was really cool. The article points out it's the first new pterosaur named from Scotland since Mary Anning found Dimorphodon in 1828. Whoa! This is the first new pterosaur from Scotland in almost 200 years. (laughs) This is a neat specimen. How cool is that?
1: That's awesome.
0: Now, of course, it's not just that it's super big and cool. This is important because this is a time period that is an essential time in the evolution of pterosaurs. So this is a time of transition where we're moving from the sort of Jurassic style into the Cretaceous style. And this shows that pterosaurs were getting big and diverse in size earlier than we might have expected and potentially earlier than birds were. Yeah. So previous studies have found that pterosaurs got big around the time birds were diversifying and that that might have been some sort of competitive adaptation. But this seems to be bigger earlier than we might expect from that kind of Interaction, and the authors point out that this has led them to look at some other less complete pterosaur remains from nearby and note that some of those seem similar enough that they might also have been unexpectedly large for this time.
1: So there may have
0: been a variety of larger pterosaurs in the Jurassic period than we realized. Very neat.
1: The debate about what was the interaction between birds and pterosaurs fascinates me. So it's neat to find an early big one
0: in that dialogue. Now, just to make a note about the difficulty of estimating sizes, uh, the the National Geographic article does have a quote from David Unwin, who is a researcher who has done work on pterosaurs. They quote this particular researcher expressing caution about the size estimates because their estimates of size are based on comparing with Ramphorhynchus, another famous earlier pterosaur which, they point out, has unusually long arm bones for pterosaurs. Now, that doesn't mean this wasn't a big pterosaur, but this is cautioning to go, your estimate will vary depending on what other pterosaurs you're comparing it with. So the more comparisons and the more material we have, the better we can potentially refine the potential range of the size of this specimen.
1: Yeah, well, it, it would be like if we found an ancient ape arm and estimated its size based off of
0: our arm and proportions instead of based off of a chimpanzee
1: and you know and not calculating
0: for the fact that their legs are much shorter compared to their arms versus our leg and arms and i thought that was an interesting uh, just an extra little insight into the potential troubles Mm -hmm. with trying to estimate how big an ancient animal was. absolutely well
1: especially with something like this because the the flying mechanics lead to huge diversity. like mm-hmm. You see that in birds today, where like you can look at multiple flying bird groups, like not even worrying about the flightless ones, and the wing bones will be insanely dif- different and diverse. Mm-hmm. Because one's flying fast, one's flying high, one's flying slowly, one's gliding, and you could get the same thing with pterosaurs.
0: And since you brought up troubles with headlines, I do remember the first headline that I saw about this find called it the largest flying reptile known or something like that. Like oh, yeah. they meant to say largest Jurassic pterosaur, but it said largest known. And I saw it and thought, not only is that uh, very incorrect, mm-hmm. uh, that's, a, that's a, that's a big misrepresentation, but also anyone who's even remotely a fan mm-hmm. of ancient animals is going to call you out on that one. Yep. I would, I I I wonder if that got corrected soon after I saw it. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised because yeah, hey, <laughs> uh, the largest flying
1: reptile at just over two meters. Just over two meters. Wait a minute! I've uh-huh. seen the
0: trailer to Jurassic World, <laughs> <laughs> and I had that. I was like, not only is that a mistake, and not only is it pr- relatively common knowledge that shows that that's a mistake, but that Jurassic World Dominion trailer came out like two weeks ago. <laughs> Bits is fresh on people's minds. <laughs> That's good
1: stuff. Well, my next news is another new dinosaur. A new dinosaur? A new dinosaur. Uh, I thought we could freshen things up with another one. (laughs) People, you don't really hear enough about new dinosaurs. You know, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Underrepresented aspect of paleontology. (laughs) This is from Argentina, and it's an abelisaur. Which is a group we've mentioned before. We have not
0: done an episode on abelisaurus.
1: We have not done an episode. They came up when we did South America, and I feel like yes. they came up another time, but I... Episode 74. Might be misremembering. This was uh, the South American group of predatory dinosaurs that was right. very well, unique to the southern
0: continents. Yeah, while the tyrannosaurs were ruling in the north, the abelisaurids were very popular in the south. This is research by
1: Federico Agnolin et al. in the Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology. And the article is by Laura Gegel in Live Science. So, the abelisors found in South America, Africa, and India. You know, these have famous ones like carnotaurus. They're often known for having those little stubby short arms. Stubby arms, short faces. Short face sort kind of, of hug. Bulldog face, mm-hmm. yep. That is uh, another note on the misleading titles. Uh, and I found this for almost every article I've tried to look up for this news, is they called them armless In quotes,
0: it was in quotes. Sure.
1: uh, That their arms are basically vestigial, that they're not
0: functional was the implication. When you see Carnotaurus and it seems like the arm above the elbow potentially didn't even protrude from the body wall.
1: That it's almost just two little hands Mm -hmm. sticking out. Uh, But there there aren't any that are actually armless. No. And the other reason I bring it up is because this new specimen
0: is only the head. (laughs) Right. <laughs> so, like with the spinosaurids how do we refer to a belly sores in a quick catchy way armless once again a little misleading because they aren't and also this one doesn't have arms yes like we don't we don't we haven't found we any have evidence of arms or not
1: zero info on their <laughs> arms <laughs> but this group is known very very well from south america uh, mostly from brazil and argentina in argentina they are usually known from patagonia where the Record is pretty good of some well-preserved and uh, near-complete specimens. The northwestern area of Argentina, the specimens are typically more incomplete with, like, isolated bones and teeth and stuff like that. This specimen comes from that area and is a complete brain case. All right. So we don't... It's still isolated, but it's coming from that region, Late Cretaceous, and it... Possesses enough unique features to be ID'd as a new species. The new taxon name is Guemesia ochoai, named for General Martin Miguel del Guemes, who was a hero in the Argentine War of Independence. Oh, cool. Which is a cool name to be named after. Like, that's awesome. So some of the things they were able to note from this brain case. One, it seems like it's likely one of the smallest abelisores recorded to date. Interesting. So not a particularly big predator. But also, it it might indicate that it's juvenile, okay. Based on its features, it is about seventy percent smaller than the typical a belly sore brain case. Oh wow! So it is itty bitty compared to others. It does not show any of the horns or like on the outer edges of the brain case. Doesn't show any evidence of having those carnotaurus horns or other head decorations that are sometimes known from this group. It also shows some features that are. More primitive, more ancestral to the group. Uh, a thin roof to the brain case was noted. Which could mean that it was more closely related to ancestral belly sores, Or at least shared some features from those ancestral and belly sores. They also pointed to that if it's missing those horns, that could mean that that's because it was among a group that had yet to evolve them.
2: Mm-hmm. That or it was, if it's
1: a juvenile, that yeah. might be a secondary sexual characteristic. Exactly. They did notice a unique feature... Some rows of small holes at the front of the skull piece that may be for like, pumping blood. Like It looks like it was passages for blood flow or something like that. That would potentially help with cooling off, yeah. you know, blushing an area to get rid of excess heat, which a lot of
0: birds do today. Mm-hmm. And a lot of dinosaurs have various adaptations for air conditioning around their brain, as we've talked about.
1: Absolutely. So this is something notable in this specimen. And then it's also just noteworthy because of where it came from. It did not come from the area of Patagonia or uh, or Argentina in general. That is typically known. It is one of the rarer abelisaur sites. And its unique features uh, may indicate that there was a distinct grouping uh, along with other specimens found there that this area might have been noteworthy from the other areas of Argentina as far as abelisauris were concerned. Mm -hmm. There may have been, as they said, providences that were separating out this group. And so even though it's just a small piece, there, there could be many interesting implications due to its features and location.
0: Yeah, sometimes you find a small bit of an ancient thing, of a fossil, of a, of a specimen, that is the first hint of more to find. Yes.
1: And when the fact that it's a brain case allowed them to still do quite a bit of study, even though it's just, you know, one, one small percentage of the whole animal Right. It's a part that actually can still tell us quite a bit about the animal.
0: Yeah, often when you think about isolated pieces, you know, individual bits, we're talking about partial limb bones or vertebrae or teeth or things like that. A brain case is a very useful and informative part of the body. Because we can, like, if you get part of a leg, we can still usually
1: tell what group it came from because, you know, a dog leg and a cat leg do not look the same. Right. So we can still place it and we still may be able to get a size estimate and maybe even ideas on like well it's very similar to this other leg which seems like a running animal so this may have also been that the brain brain's kind of a really crucial part of the body
0: yeah we <laughs> learned a lot about that episode 121 <laughs> <laughs> well from our last bit of news just to mix things up this is news about a new species Oh, okay. from the Mesozoic era Ooh. Uh, but this one's a plant Oh. Specifically? No, no, hang on. going to be cool. <laughs> How dare you?
1: I was to say, I, I apologize, Allie. Allie,
0: somewhere yeah. Allie is perked up. She's going to she's 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 get on felt, to me next time. Felt a disturbance. <laughs> These plant remains were found among volcanic deposits in the Deccan Traps in India. Ooh. And there's a fun little twist that the headlines have been taking advantage of. A little bit.
2: <laughs>
0: this research is by Rachel Reback, et al., in the International Journal of Plant Sciences. And we will link in the blog post to a press release in fizz.org by Gerald Pinson from the Florida Museum of Natural History. We've talked about the Deccan Traps in India before. They came up in episode 5 about the end Cretaceous mass extinction. They came up in episode 131 when we talked about large igneous provinces. (laughs) The Deccan Traps are a large igneous province. Echo, echo, echo. I need a special microphone for
1: that. This is like when the character says it and the words come out and fill the screen. Large igneous (laughs) provinces.
0: Which means a vast area of repeated volcanic rock deposited by successive massive eruptions of lava across a landscape.
1: Layer upon layer upon layer over years and years and years.
0: In this case, they are repeated layers of basaltic flows from the latest Cretaceous. This is the large igneous province that is associated with the end Cretaceous mass extinction. But, despite this being an area with lots of volcanic activity, between the basalt flows are what are known as intertrapian beds of other... Rocks. Sedimentary rocks. That's a good name. Shales, cherts, limestones, and clays, many of which have fossils. This study examines tiny, very well-preserved fruits in some of the chert deposits. With CT scanning, they were able to identify these fruits as having probably belonged to some kind of trees or shrubs within the group called Euphorbiaceae, which are commonly known as spurges or euphorbias. Today, there are several thousand species of euphorbias, which includes such plants as rubber trees, castor oil plants, and poinsettias, among many, many others. This is exciting because, along with remains of wood from similarly aged deposits, these represent the oldest known fossils of this group of plants. Ooh. Right at the end of the Cretaceous. They identified two different species here. One of them is already known, Carpon mogauensi. The other is a new species, Euphorbiotheca decanensis. Both of which, the fruits that they're using to identify them are less than five millimeters in diameter. Wow. So these are very small plant remains, which is not uncommon for studying plants. This find is exciting for two big reasons, one of which is the secret special twist. The first is that this helps us to understand this time period in India history. India as a landmass has an unusual and unique history, as we discussed back in episode 119. These deposits come from a time when India was on its way north towards the Asian continent, where it is today, during a time period where it was separated and was developing ecosystems unique to itself, approaching the equator. There are lots of interesting questions about what was going on during that time period, what was evolving during that time period. There are certain groups of life that are thought to have originated in this area, or at least or their early evolution, important parts of it took place in this area, such as grapes and whales.
2: <laughs>
0: so this is an interesting time period to be finding new species in, because it's very informative about this part of the world at this time. The other part, the even cooler part, and the part that should be in more headlines, is that these are explosive fruits. <gasps> Neat. So that is a thing we see in some modern-day euphorbias, including rubber trees and castor oil plants. What they do is that the fruits, as they ripen, they lose water and become desiccated, which puts tension on the outer layers of the fruit until the fruit pops. It bursts and pieces go flying in all directions, dispersing seeds. Yeah. While looking at these ancient fruits, the researchers noted that they have similar anatomy to exploding fruits today, where the fibers in the inner layers are oriented in opposing directions from the fibers in the outer layers. Oh, cool. Which helps create that opposing tension Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to help that pressure build when it's time to erupt. And this is cool for a whole bunch of reasons. Number one, exploding fruits. That's awesome. Number two, finding evidence of this manner of dispersal in the fossil record. Very cool. And number three, and the reason that i really... Journalists should be taking more advantage of this. Exploding fruits from ancient volcanic fields? That's awesome. Yes. What (laughs) a cool discovery.
1: Those are all cool words (laughs) in one sentence. That's... I like this. Not only do we have fossils between the lava layers, which is always... That's a cool concept. Yeah. These are the things that were surviving and and thriving in between being layered... (laughs) Yep, in between
0: the pulses.
1: <laughs> if only you knew what was coming. That's awesome.
0: Uh, there was actually a note in the article, I think, in the press release, I think, about how the researchers make the point that in the kind of ecosystem we expect in this area at this time, you would expect to find evidence of larger plants, mm-hmm. like trunks and stems that were bigger, but they don't. And it might be that... Either there wasn't enough time to grow those really large developed ecosystems because you were in a place where you were getting these repeated pulses of volcanic activity, or that because you are trying to grow in relatively thin sediments above the latest basaltic lava flow, mm-hmm. there might not have been enough room for tree roots. Yeah. That you may, this area may have just been restricted to smaller plants. Which I don't want to stress that too much because it doesn't. It sounds like that is an idea, not something we know for sure.
1: Yeah, to answer why we aren't finding as much as we expect,
0: right. that could be an answer. But it does drive home the point that yeah, this would have been an unusual environment for an ecosystem to develop in.
1: Yes, that's fascinating in and of itself. But it's also like the exploding, exploding fruits are awesome today. Uh, I I always blank on the names, but there's that one that you can always, you can pinch and it will just pop Mm. when you pinch it because it's, it is under that tension. And if you just apply a little extra pressure, (laughs) it'll just go brink and, and just explode little seeds all over your hand. The fact that we can recognize the structure for that is not something I'd ever considered. Nope. Because yeah, it's a physics, you know. They grow in a way so that physics pops them Mm -hmm. when they dry out. So, of course, the structure would have to be very particular. So it makes sense. I just had never considered it. That's amazing.
0: It makes me think... It's funny to me that I'm surprised by stuff like that. And it goes to show how out of touch with plant anatomy I am. (laughs) Because back to the Spinosaurids, we are able to look at Spinosaurus bones and go, yeah, this bone has the same sort of pattern of density that we expect to see in animals that are spending some more than usual amounts of time in the water. Absolutely. Like penguins and hippos and things like that. And I am at a point where I am not at all surprised anymore if somebody says, yeah, this bone tells me it lived in the water. Mm-hmm. Which to most would be surprising and preposterous. So, yeah,
1: sound like nonsense. But plants but don't plant, have
0: bones. <laughs> you go, yeah, the shape of this... The internal structure of this fruit tells me that it would blow up. And I'm like, that's amazing. (laughs) It's the same principle. You're just looking at anatomy. But yeah, I'd never heard that before. (laughs) Neat. Well, hey, speaking of things that are mind-blowing and awesome and a little bit disturbing, (laughs) that's the end of the news. It is time to move on to our main episode topic. Will, I hope you're ready. deep breaths get ready for it (laughs) it's so cool I am so excited to talk about blood eating animals there are so many cool examples there are it's such a fascinating convergent evolution topic so cool so buckle your seatbelts and get ready for us to talk about mosquitoes and bats and all sorts of cool creatures after the break it is time for our conversation about sanguivores let's
1: get creepy
0: You know, I debated a little bit what words to put in the title of this episode. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about blood suckers, right? Mm-hmm. That's the first th- instant thing that comes to mind.
1: Yeah, that is the go to term.
0: But technically, not all animals that feed on blood are blood suckers. They're not no. sucking the blood, there's no suction. They are feeding on the blood, but blood feeding doesn't sound quite as cool. <laughs> so I went with blood eating. Yeah. Sanguivores, parentheses, blood-eating. up. Briefly, I considered just calling it vampires, <laughs> but that felt a little bit misleading. And blood-eating is the most direct translation of the actual technical scientific words. True. So, some terminology. The title of this episode features the word sanguivores. Sanguivores, animals that practice sanguivory, that are sanguivorous, Vorus, vori, comes from the same root, Latin vorare, as carnivore, herbivore. It means to devour Mm
2: -hmm. or to
0: eat. Sanguis, also Latin, like in the word exsanguinate, blood. Yep. Sanguivores, blood eaters. You'll also see the word, so that's the Latin one. There's the Greek version, which is (laughs) hematophagy or hematophages or hematophagus. Exactly the same thing hemato from the same root as, you know, hemoglobin and all the other blood things. It means blood. And phagy from the same, you know, esophagus, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, creepily enough, sarcophagus, (laughs) meaning to eat. Blood eaters. I actually saw hematophagy used more often in scientific texts than sanguivores. Really? While I was doing research. Yeah, I saw both. Yeah. But more recent stuff that I read used hematophagy. Over sanguivery.
1: Interesting.
0: But I went with sanguivery for three reasons. One, it's the word I'm more familiar with. Same. Two, it's the word that's on the request list. Yep. And three, because I think it sounds way cooler.
2: Yeah, why would... I mean,
0: <laughs> no judgments on what you, terms you use in your paper, but... sanguivary. Why would you not? And then, of course, there's the other word that is more colloquially very commonly used to describe animals that feed on blood, which is the word vampire. Vampire. Which, as far as I'm aware, was not originally invented to describe animals doing it. It was originally commonly used for the mythical horror monster.
1: Yeah, for vampire.
0: For vampire, for Dracula and his ilk.
1: Yes. Yeah, the bats and so forth were named after the monster.
0: Yes, and indeed, there are a lot of animals that are named vampire. <laughs> we're going to talk about a bunch of them later on in this episode. <laughs> Yay. So this episode, we're talking about blood suckers, blood drinkers, blood eaters, blood feeding organisms, and there are plenty of them in the world. Vampire bats, of course, are one example. Perhaps the first example that comes to mind are things like mosquitoes mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. fleas. Mm-hmm. Yep. I know that you happen to have a favorite. Blah, leeches. <laughs> this episode, we're going to get into sort of the diversity, how they feed, what kind of adaptations they do. This is going to get a little bit gross. It, it's hard not to delve, uh, to to flirt with the categories of body horror. It's not going to be too bad. <laughs> we're not going to go into too much detail, but... Yeah, be be aware we're going to be talking about animals that eat blood. If you're blood it's gonna, sensitive, it's going to be a little it's going to be a little creepy. It will be mentioned once or twice. But before we get into the actual animals, let's talk a little bit first about blood. Blood, I'm sure most of our listeners probably all of our listeners are familiar with blood.
1: I, I hope so. I would think so. <laughs> I, I hope you're at least in possession of some. <laughs> if you're not familiar with Never it. Never leave home without it.
0: <laughs> blood is a specialized body fluid. It is a bunch of stuff in a fluid mixture, basically. The matrix of blood, sort of the containing stuff, is plasma. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Plasma is mostly water. Yeah, it's the see-through part of it. Inside the plasma, it is carrying blood cells, including red blood cells that transport oxygen and carbon dioxide, white blood cells that are part of the immune system, platelets, which are cell fragments that help with blood clotting, Plus a whole variety of nutrients, vitamins, proteins, hormones, antibodies, waste products, dissolved gases. Blood is this stew of all sorts of different stuff.
1: Because it acts as a a huge transport system. So whatever your body's transporting at that moment often can be making its way through the blood.
0: This is the anatomical highway. Yarp. And indeed, blood has a number of jobs in our bodies. It delivers oxygen and nutrients to the various tissues of the body. Carries waste away from those tissues to the kidneys and liver, helps fight off infection with all those immune cells, also regulates body temperature, so your blood in your core is nice and warm, and so it goes out to the extremities and warms up your fingers and your toes. Yeah, it's
1: like a radiator system.
0: In us vertebrates, us vertebrate animals, blood is pumped from the heart into arteries, which branch off into smaller arterioles, which branch off into absolutely tiny vessels called capillaries, where the walls of the blood vessels are so thin that oxygen and nutrients just diffuse straight through into the tissues. Yeah, you don't actually have, like, openings. It just leaves and comes and goes. (laughs) It comes and gets like going through tissue paper. (laughs) And waste and carbon dioxide come into the capillaries, which then transport it into the veins and through the rest of the circulatory system. Our bodies have quite a bit of blood in them. <laughs> in humans, the number that I saw is that on average humans tend to have between 1.2 and 1.5 gallons of blood. Wow. Uh, for our liter enthusiasts out there, that's four and a half to six liters. Blood makes up about seven to eight percent of our body weight.
1: That's, that's actually a smaller percent than I think I would have guessed if you had hmm. just put a gun to my head.
0: Yeah, I think that put what that's like what 15 pounds, 15, 20 pounds, yeah. which makes sense. I mean that it doesn't sound wrong. I just yeah. yeah. Huh. So we've got we've, we've each got roughly two house cats in weight worth <laughs> of blood in our bodies. Now, uh, vertebrates all have blood right? yep. mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, fish. Invertebrates can have blood like things. So to give one example that will come up again later, insects, have what's called hemolymph. And hemolymph isn't quite blood. It doesn't really flow the same way. They have vessels, but a lot of the vessels open into just open sinuses, where instead of the blood being driven by the tissues and diffusing stuff in, the fluid just bathes the organs. Yeah. They're just soaking in it, and that's sort of what's called an open circulatory system. Insect hemolymph doesn't carry gases in it because they just get gas directly from the outside world. Yeah,
1: they're not pumping air like we are, so there's Mm -hmm. no reason to have to transport the air you pumped. You're just
0: soaking it up like a sponge in the atmosphere. Hemolymph, incidentally, also isn't red because the thing that makes our blood red and the red blood cells red is hemoglobin. Yep. The pigment. They don't have that because that hemoglobin transports oxygen... And they're not transporting gases like that, so they don't need that. I love those little notes of the reason it's a different color is because it's doing a different job.
1: Yes. Not just that it's made differently. It's because it's functioning differently. And the reason ours is ours color is because of the way it functions.
0: Yeah. So blood, in its various forms, is basically just a milkshake that is full of nutrients and vitamins and gases and all sorts of stuff it is a nutritious slurry yeah it's not a it's not one thing it is a bunch of things mixed in the fluid that we're moving through pipes so it's not altogether surprising that evolution has hit upon the strategy of using that as a food source Mm -hmm. much like Drinking the water out of plants, or the nectar out of plants, or whatever fluids you're drinking out of
2: plants.
0: (laughs) Blood is right there and ripe for the taking. Sanguivory is surprisingly common. I've seen notes that suggest there are around 30,000 species of known blood-sucking animals, thousands of which are obligate sanguivores. Which is that that right there. And that, that means that they have to eat blood. And oftentimes only blood. And, and for many of them, would not be able to eat something else even if they wanted to. Yes. <laughs> Obligate sanguers. There are also a bunch of what are known as facultative. So this these are terms I think we've used before. Obligate means you have to do the thing. Facultative means you sometimes do. Yes. I Probably the first time this came up on the podcast was in regards to bipedalism. Yep, yep, yep. Animals that must walk on two legs versus facultative bipeds that can go on two legs but they don't always go on two legs like a gorilla yep so we've got you must drink blood sometimes do because i guess you feel like it or yeah. you need it for something you dabble and the most interesting thing about sanguivory and its diversity is that it has evolved over and over and over and over again in many different unrelated groups
1: yeah evidently when you make a juice inside your body that's full of All your nutrients.
0: Yeah. When you're a walking fuel station. People want to tap into that. (laughs) So let's get just a quick rundown of what are some of the animals that feed on blood and what are some of the various ways that they go about doing it. This is the diversity of sanguivora section. We're going to go through some of just the world's creepiest animals. (laughs) The number one champions in the realm of blood eating are insects. Yes. Uh, Which is not surprising, insects are the number one champions in a lot of things.
1: Yep, yep. (laughs) If there's a thing that's been done,
0: insects often did it first. (laughs) Yep, and probably best. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) And among insects, probably the most famous and potentially the most successful of the groups that engage in blood eating are diptera. Yeah. This is the order that includes your flies, your midges, and your mosquitoes. Mosquitoes, black flies, midges, sandflies, flies, stable flies, tsetse flies, this order has seen the origination of many different blood-eating insects. And they're not all the same. Tsetse flies are obligate sanguivores. They feed on the blood of vertebrate animals, and they do it their whole lives, larvae yes. through adult. Then there are some, like the Congo floor maggot, which is a species of blowfly, only the larvae are sanguivorous. When they become adults, they eat different food. And then there's the flip side. A lot of flies and mosquitoes only drink blood as adults. Mm-hmm. The larvae are doing something else. The adults are the ones that are feeding on blood. And in oftentimes in mosquitoes, it's only the females.
1: Yep, and it's only for reproduction purposes.
0: Yes, in mosquitoes, and they're not the only insects that do this. They get a blood meal specifically to get a shot of nutrients to provide for their eggs. Yep. Yeah. In mosquitoes, blood, the, having a meal of blood triggers the development of their eggs.
1: And so that that always has fascinated me because mosquitoes are, I think, second to another group that we will mention. But, like, they are <laughs> by far one of the most famous blood-drinking animals. Oh, yeah. Like, everyone thinks of them almost instantly when you men- mention things that eat blood. And they are by far the most infamous that we deal with. Yep. And yet, they're not obligate blood drinkers, and to my knowledge, are often herbivorous, drinking uh, uh, plant
0: juices. Yes, most mosquitoes, most of the time, adults, are eating off of plants. Yep. They're fruit juices and things like that. So it's just, the one that we all
1: want to point the finger at actually is not the poster child yeah. for sanguivory, you think it is.
0: <laughs> well, they are, they they don't do it all the time, but when they do it, they sure make an impact. Oh yeah, they, they make, they make <laughs> themselves known. We're, we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Mosquitoes aren't the only ones. There are uh, among insects that reproduce with their blood nutrition. Some will lay eggs, a new batch of eggs, each time they feed on blood. Oh. You get a blood meal, you lay some eggs. I believe some mosquitoes do that. That's like a video game. <laughs> right? <laughs> there are others that need several meals to produce eggs. But yeah, for animals like this, drinking blood is a part of their reproductive cycle. Among diptera, flies, midges, mosquitoes, there are also different methods of feeding. I'll mention two sort of uh, major ones. Some, like midges, like black flies, engage in what is called... Pool feeding. Yep. They use their mouth parts to cut a hole in the skin of their host, because these are all parasites. Mm-hmm. Episode 102. They cut a hole in the skin, severing a bunch of capillaries, and then they drink out of the little pool of blood that forms there.
1: Yeah, lapping it up like a can.
0: <laughs> Others, like mosquitoes, are capillary feeders. Mm-hmm. Their mouth parts are basically a pointy straw that goes through the skin into a capillary. And they're just drinking straight out of the tube.
1: Yeah, which is, like, th- by far the more refined oh, yeah. option. I mean, like, you're just cutting a
0: hole in me? You're just turning me into a blood well? You cut that out. Mosquitoes mosquitoes really have, you know, pinky out and everything. <laughs> <laughs> Other insects that feed on blood, another extremely famous example, are lice. Mm-hmm. And lice are interesting because they are what is called permanent sanguivores or more specifically permanent parasites yeah so we've talked about parasites before episode 102 also last episode 133 about symbiosis parasites come in a variety of forms ectoparasites are parasites that live on the outside of the body of the host lice crawl around on the outside of the body and drink blood by biting into the host But they are permanent in the sense that a louse wants to never leave the host body. Yes. A temporary blood drinker, like a mosquito, stops by for a little bit, takes a bit of blood, and flies away. Yes. Lice are permanent. And in fact, many lice have very specific hosts. Uh, Human lice, we have head lice, we have pubic lice. There are lice that specialize in elephants and warthogs and all sorts of different animals. Whereas you've got things like mosquitoes, again, that a mosquito is... Mosquitoes are rarely picky. Yeah. A lot of flies and mosquitoes will just go around drinking blood wherever they can find it. And on the note of ectoparasites like that, fleas Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm. are
0: also blood drinkers. In this case, so fleas are obligate blood drinkers. They must drink blood. That is all that they can do as adults. Larval fleas are different, but as adults, they are obligate blood drinkers, and they feed on warm-blooded animals. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They feed on mammals and birds. You won't find fleas eating, you know, fish and stuff like that. There are also blood drinkers among the order Hemiptera, the, quote, true bugs. This includes kissing bugs. It includes assassin bugs. And another of the most famous groups of blood-drinking animals, Will's nodding his head. Yep. Simicidae, which is the family of bed bugs bed bugs Bull. bed bugs which are famous for hanging out in bird nests bat caves or beds yep <laughs> or seedy hotels or yeah <laughs> <laughs> or yeah your apartment if you haven't cleaned it well enough <laughs> that, well actually that's not even true i i read a whole thing in one of the references i was reading about that bed bugs are not linked specifically to
2: uncleanliness, uncleanliness. yeah
0: they just get around and if you're not keeping up with, you know, checking for them yeah, they might get out of hand.
1: If you're letting your linens get out of control, sure, sure. then that but a
0: dirty floor does not equal that bed bugs. <laughs> right. So bed bugs are just uh, I we will and I we've talked a lot about animals with bad reputations. Mm-hmm. So we will go more into that later in this episode a little bit. And I we try Not tell you know, okay, they're all just animals. They're all just living their lives. Bed bugs are objectively disturbing. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Sorry, guys, but... uh. (gasps) A couple other quick insect examples. There are beetles that drink blood, and there are at least a few species of lepidopterans, which is the group that includes moths and butterflies.
1: Yes, there are, there are.
0: Now, there are moths and butterflies that will feed on carrion, Mm -hmm. and they'll sort of eat the decaying bodies and stuff. But there are at least a handful of species in the genus Calyptra, which are called vampire moths. Yep,
1: I had forgotten about the vampire moths.
0: Males in this group are known to use their piercing mouthparts, like a mosquito, to pierce the hides of large mammals, even humans, and drink the blood. Which,
1: again, I love... Because in mosquitoes we just mentioned, it's the females. Yep. And in here it's the
0: males. So there's all sorts of wacky diversity. The diversity, it's insane. Uh, these moths typically eat fruit juice and nectar, like mosquitoes. Uh, it's thought that the blood might be a good way to get salt. Oh,
2: yeah. Because blood
0: tends to be kind of salty. Uh, there are also moths and butterflies that drink tears. Yep, yep. For the same reason. The lac- lacrimophages, I think is what that's called. Cool. Uh, There are other moths that will eat blood from wounds. So if an animal has an open wound, they'll lap up some of the blood.
1: Yeah, opportunistically.
0: Uh, And, and this is just a quote I pulled out of a book I was reading about this, there are moths that are apparently known to drink blood, quote, from the anus of feeding mosquitoes. (laughs) So a mosquito (laughs) in some sort of insect centipede scenario, you've got a mosquito... (laughs) Drinking blood and excreting it during the meal. And a moth will fly around and go, oh, look, well, how handy is this? (laughs) Straight from the tap.
1: That's (laughs) hilarious. And I do know that I think mosquitoes do this, and I I think there are others, that whenever they're drinking your blood, they are also going to the bathroom on you because they are excreting the water. (laughs) Yes,
0: absolutely. And we'll talk about that again later. Yeah, Gross. So insects absolutely champions. Of blood drinking. It has shown up many times in many groups. There are other arthropods. Arthropods really are, as a, as a whole, the champs, yes. including insects. There are, of course, arachnids mm-hmm. that are blood eaters. Ticks are obligate blood feeders on vertebrates. And mites, uh, some of which are parasitic as adults, many of which feed on insects. Right, true. So varroa mites are famous these days because they feed on honeybees. Mm-hmm. And they're feeding on the hemolymph. They are blood suckers, kind of. They're, they're kind of blood eaters. Yes. Because they're eating kind of blood. Yes, semi-sanguivores. <laughs> Many uh, mites are parasitic in various ways, sometimes only as larvae. And, and this one gets a little side mention, there is an entire category of parasitic mite larvae that you may be familiar with called chiggers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Chiggers are not blood eaters. Chiggers are eating the cellular fluids of their hosts, oh. not technically drinking the blood.
1: They're cytoplasm vores.
0: Yes. They are drink they're slurping up fluids, but it's not blood fluids.
1: That's somehow worse. Right? Isn't like, it that's like you're going into my body and popping my cells like water balloons and drinking them up? <laughs>
0: yeah, it's not it's not great. Yeah, I don't I don't prefer that. Now, if you are a person who just gets really gets the heebie-jeebies about creepy crawlies, we are just about done with all the worst examples. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> there are crustaceans that drink blood. Oh, For okay. example, the salmon louse is a copepod that is parasitic on salmon.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Outside of arthropods, there are gastropods that drink blood. The family are have earned the common name vampire snails. Weird. These are marine snails. So if you think like a cone snail kind of situation, at least several different species are known to feed on blood of fish. Mm -hmm. They will hang out in the nests or shelters used by fish. And when the fish are sleeping, they will drink the blood. They have a a sharp mouth part on the end of a long proboscis. So they just reach it up there and poke into the fish and drink some blood.
1: That's some Lovecraftian vampirism.
0: (laughs) Getting even less like vertebrates, there are, of course, blood-drinking worms. Yep. There are hookworms, Mm -hmm. which belong to the group called roundworms. There are nematodes. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are a number of intestinal nematodes that live in the intestines of animals and drink blood from the inside. And then, of course, uh, certainly the most famous blood-eating worms, and indeed probably among the top five most famous blood-eating groups of animals, Yep, Will's favorite, leeches. It's the one group of animals (laughs) that gives me
1: legitimate heebie-jeebies.
0: Leeches, again, we're not here to demonize any animals. Never. Leeches are creepy. Worms shouldn't have teeth and should not hunt you down. Leeches are not they're not a pleasant group of animals oh. to, to think too hard about. And stick their long proboscis down into your butt. No, I don't want it. <laughs> there are several hundred species of leeches. They live in marine environments, terrestrial environments, a lot of freshwater species. I read about at least one cave species. A oh. colorless cave species in New Guinea. Huh. Which is pretty cool. episode 112 caves of all. Yeah, add that to the list of things you might find in a cave. Yeah, there are many leeches that are predatory, that they will eat small animals, small invertebrates. But about three quarters of them are blood eaters. Uh, Leeches are a very dedicated group of blood eating animals. They prey on all sorts of stuff. Sharks, fish, frogs, snakes, crocs, birds, mammals, leeches on the basically if you are an animal with blood, you're on the menu. For leeches.
1: I, a video that always comes to mind for me is, I think they were tiger leeches, which are very, like, swim after their prey. And it was them taking down a crab, which mm. is the first time I knew leeches would go after something like that. Sure. And just watching a leech conquer a crab was, <laughs> was my heebie-jeebies of leeches is only equaled by my
0: fascination of them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> it was horrifying and fascinating at the same time. Yeah. Ugh. Listen, animals that are mostly soft should not be taking down animals that are mostly hard parts. Yes. That is just against the order of things. that We all I agreed. S- I say as a vertebrate <laughs> with all my bones. <laughs> we all agreed. Now, we talked about a lot of insects are using piercing or cutting mouth parts. Uh, arachnids are also using similar things. Leeches have mouths with hundreds of teeth and the muscles of the jaw move the teeth back and forth like a saw to enter the body of the animal. They have suckers, like suction cups, on their tail and mouth Mm -hmm. to attach themselves uh, to, you know, like if they're hanging out on a reed or on a rock and they don't want to get swept away by the current, also so that they don't fall off the thing they're eating. Well, you also have ones
1: that'll go to the end of, like, leaves and stems and... Suction cup their little butt down and then wave their face around to hopefully grab you as you're walking
0: by. Waiting for something. (laughs) There are also leeches that will hang out in the water and when a big animal sticks its face in the water to get a drink, the leeches will seek refuge in like their nasal cavities. Yeah, I knew that's
1: what you were going to say. And just
0: hang out in there. And then you said it. And drink the blood. Well, because now they're protected. It's warm and damp and it's dark. That's like the stuffiest, worst stuffy nose ever. (laughs) I read a story. Oh, man, do I want to say this on the podcast? This is gross. Be aware, this part's gross. I read a story in a a book that I was reading. I'll link to it in the podcast, in the blog post, about a bunch. I think these were soldiers. It was Mm -hmm. some like European military crew that was traveling across the Middle East or Northern Africa, somewhere in there, and a group of people who weren't familiar with the surroundings, who drank a bunch of water from a nearby (sighs) uh, river or stream uh, that was, uh, unbeknownst to them, full of larval leeches, and ended up with, as the book described it, when the, the men started getting ill a couple days later, and the doctors observed that their noses and mouths and throats... Were covered in leeches.
1: I feel like I have heard that story and just...
0: Ah! <laughs> Once again, we're not here to demonize anyone. No. But also... J- you make judgment yourself. <laughs> but also... <laughs> based on the clear no.
1: evidence at hand.
0: Oh, uh, man. Leeches, uh, whereas a lot of animals uh, that we've talked about will sort of lap up the blood or suck up the blood... Leeches use wave-like contractions of the digestive tract, like peristalsis, to provide (laughs) suction. Yep. (laughs) They just start swallowing it from you. A leech can eat up to ten times its weight in blood in a meal. And this I thought was really interesting. Some species can apparently survive years between meals. Huh. That it can just eat a bunch of blood and then hang out and not do anything for a couple of years. See, this is like
1: a a mythical D&D... (laughs)
0: fantasy monster
1: that like the colorless cave leech takes on passenger only once every few years,
0: but it can survive off the blood that it takes. (laughs) And just like, wow. One of the things that I learned in reading about sanguivores and sanguivore research in preparation for this episode is that, so first of all, these are fascinating animals. Yes. Uh, Even, even the gross ones, we agree. And the people who study them certainly agree. And I learned that it is a apparently common habit for people that study blood-eating animals that they will also happily feed them. Yep. I've read a bunch of stories where it's some a researcher who's like, yep, I study bedbugs. Here's my little jar of bedbugs so that I can show people. And this is their container where they live. And people go, why is there no cover? It's just a mesh screen. And they go, oh, that's for feeding time. Mm-hmm. And then they put put the mesh screen on the top of the jar against their arm and all the bedbugs crawl and poke their little mouths through the mesh to get food.
1: There's a whole musical about feeding blood to, <laughs> to blood-eating things and how it can go wrong. Little Shop of Horrors was a warning. That's
0: true. <laughs> uh, I did read uh, a story of a researcher who went to visit another researcher who kept a bedbug colony And he was fascinated by it. And the guy who kept the colony was like, well, if you'd like, you can feed them later. And the way he described it was, and I said, that sounds great. Not realizing what I had just agreed to. (laughs) (laughs) This is is like the beginning
1: of Dracula and Jonathan Harker's, (laughs) (laughs) I don't drink wine. I don't
0: drink wine. (laughs) So most of the world's blood eating animals are invertebrates. They are the champions of it. But there are vertebrates that do it. There are, for example, some fish that are blood drinkers. Very true. Lampreys, mm-hmm. very famously, which are long, eel-like, uh, jawless fish that have rings of teeth at one end and they attach to a host and suck blood. Very similar to leeches in a, mm-hmm. a superficial sense. There are also candy rue, which is a type of catfish, which is in the habit of entering the gills of larger fish. And holding on with its hook-like denticles, Mm -hmm. and biting with its needle teeth, and sucking blood for a few minutes at a time. Yep. This is another one of those. It, It gets in there, sucks up some blood, and then leaves. Candy roos are, unusual for vertebrates, obligate sanguivores. Oh, really? They must drink blood. At least the blood-drinking ones. I don't know about the diversity of candy roo.
1: Yeah, I'm but, pretty sure it is a actually pretty diverse group, but I don't remember.
0: Obligate sanguivores among vertebrates, which is very unusual. candy roo, incidentally, are also the fish that there are the legends about them swimming into urethras and yep. getting lodged in there, which has reportedly happened one time. Yeah, this isn't a thing that happens. It is
1: a thing that may have happened to one person well, it, one time.
0: It is reported definitively. From one person in the 90s. But apparently they the rumors were around for decades before that.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Here's the guy that proved it to be true. Yeah. We don't have to go into the details of that story. That's a different episode. <laughs> there are also blood-eating birds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, mo- the first one that always comes to my mind are oxpeckers. Yes. This is a group of birds in the starling family. These are the birds you see in the African safari hanging out on the rhinos and the buffalo and stuff. Eating parasites off of them and sometimes also just sticking their beaks into the open wounds and taking some blood and flesh
1: yep yeah the, uh, i that was uh, another one i remember being a, a, a big deal when people were like hey you remember how we used to present oxpectors as being these super helpful little sweet <laughs> f- bird friends that hung out on the back of these big animals well evidently maybe not always yeah <laughs> it seems like sometimes they go oh tasty blood yeah while I'm here... They go, I like this big thing that has tasty stuff on it and coming out of it.
0: <laughs> there is also the Galapagos sharp-beaked ground finch, <laughs> also known as vampire finches. There you go. These mostly eat seeds and nectar and eggs, but when they when the mood strikes, they will go up to blue-footed boobies and peck at their wings and tails and sip blood from the wounds. Wow. Uh, and there are a handful of birds that do this birds that have gotten in the habit of occasionally taking blood
1: well, and it's also interesting because it's uh, bird on bird yeah like that is, that's just not necessarily the animal you'd expect them to go for you know the birds going for a big animal makes sense because you're these little flitting birds, and,
0: like, right. what's a rhino going to do to you? Well, and it's a lot like the insects. Yes. Yeah, you're, or even leeches. You're flitting around in your environment, landing on something big, and taking some blood.
1: And, like, you know, blue-footed boobies are not small birds. so no, they're not, like, itty-bitty songbird-sized. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there still can be a size difference, but that's not the animal I thought you were going to say.
0: Yeah. It's, like, real nuisances. Neat. <laughs> and then, of course, the last group we'll talk about. Certainly the most famous vertebrates, and perhaps definitely like top three most famous blood-eating animals in the world, vampire bats. Yeah. Bats are mammals, and again, very excitingly, there are three species of vampire bats, all of which are obligate sanguivores. Yeah. They must eat blood, and outside of occasional rare accidents, they apparently (laughs) only eat blood.
1: Which is like we said, is not not always the typical, not always the norm mm-hmm. for wars, but for a vertebrate and a mammal. Yeah, like that's th-
0: this is rare among mammals, let alone for them to be
1: <laughs> obligate.
0: Yeah. All three species live across Central and South America. There's the hairy-legged vampire bat, mm-hmm. Diphila equidata, the white-winged vampire bat, Damus youngi, both of which are pretty rare. And mainly feed on birds. Huh. They're famous for crawling around in trees mm-hmm. and feeding on birds while they're roosting. Also, poultry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. farms. Yes. I
1: have seen videos of that.
0: And then there's Desmodus rotundus, the common vampire bat. This is, as the name implies, the common one. These feed on large mammals, including sometimes humans. Mm-hmm. This is the vampire bat you've heard about. Yes. If you've heard of any one species on our list, it's this animal. <laughs> this is these are your vampire bats.
1: Yeah, whenever you see that picture that close up with that upturned nose and the little sharp that's yeah. that this is the one.
0: And you see them scuttling around on the ground yeah. after the hooves of horses and and cows. Yeah. Common vampire bats, Desmodus rotundus, also have the distinction of being the world's largest obligate sanguivores. Oh yeah. No, that makes sense. With the common vampire bat coming in at a whopping one and a half ounces. Like that's... Or 40 grams. Massive for sanguivores. For an animal that (laughs) only eats blood. Yeah. That's really big. Blood-eating animals, especially if that's all you're eating, tend to be very small. The way that vampire bats feed is also really cool. They use their front teeth, incisors, and canines, which are... Extra sharp and thin for bats to make a little incision in their host. And then their tongue moves back and forth like a piston rapidly to draw the blood in. And the movement of the blood isn't by suction, like we think of it with a straw. It's capillary action. Yes. It's just being physically drawn onto the tongue, grooves along the bottom of the tongue, plus the cleft in the lower lip. If you look at these bats up close, they have a little gap in the lower lip, and a gap in their lower incisors, a gap in the teeth, all together form a tube
2: <laughs> that the blood
0: travels through. Yes. As they flick the tongue back and forth. I love the physics of stuff like this. Yeah. Like, so they're drinking blood like cats drink water. <laughs> so you're just it's just attaching to you as you put your tongue in it. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. So there are tons of blood drinkers, but even more interestingly, there's tons of different ways to be a sanguivore.
1: Yeah, typically it's almost always presented as a, uh, well, you know, how uh, uh, drawing blood out with like a needle, Mm -hmm.
0: uh, where there is a suction involved. Which is how some of them do it. Yes. Mosquitoes are kind of basically doing that.
1: Yeah, but that's not the only way to to get blood from a person. And so there's lots of different ways that you can do it. And it's, I, I find the phys, once again, the mechanical aspects of it is fascinating.
0: Yeah. And we should mention there is one other animal on our list that I want to draw brief attention to. And that's humans. Yep. Eating blood is a custom all around the world. Oh yeah. Humans create blood soup, which is any soup that uses blood as an ingredient. Blood sausage, mm-hmm. which is sausage filled with blood. Blood tofu, blood pancakes. There are plenty of cultural and religious traditions of blood eating. Humans are sometime, we are by no means obligate. Mm-hmm. But yeah, our species also eats blood. I've eaten blood tofu.
1: I know I've had blood pudding. Mm. And I feel like I might have had blood sausage, but I don't remember now. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it it is absolutely. I've also heard of things where... Um, Nomadic groups, and I can't remember, I want to say this was Asian nomadic groups, but I don't remember where, that would mix blood into milk. Yes, I've heard about that. And it adds protein to the milk, and it, uh, it's, it was basically an energy drink mm-hmm. that you could
0: just drink, and it's a meal in and of itself on the go. Yeah. So we we are not excluded from sanguivores. Yeah. Now, on the note of humans, our species has some interesting relationships with sanguivores blood eaters are not just fascinating to us they are impactful on our species and our society in a number of ways first we use them for medicinal purposes yeah leeches back to leeches again specifically the species herudo medicinalis the european medicinal leech has for centuries been used in medical practices back in the day You'd put a leech on somebody to drain blood out of them. Now, uh, in ancient times, it was for things like, you know, balancing the humors. I say yep. ancient times. That wasn't that long ago. Yep, yep. But ba- well, back when people didn't actually know how blood worked. Yes. In the 18th and 19th centuries, apparently there was what I've seen described as leech mania. <laughs> yeah. Across the Western world, where it became so common. Uh, George Washington, our famed founding father of our country was treated to lots and lots of leeches to treat the sickness that he had before he died. Mm -hmm. And I've read discussions of modern-day people looking back and wondering how much that contributed to his death. Yep. That Yeah, you maybe a little bit too much of your leeching. Yep. Apparently there was such a leech mania at that time that this species of leeches was almost over-harvested to extinction.
1: Yeah, I did hear about that. Because people
0: went out collecting them for pharmaceutical uh, interests. But leeches are still used today in medicinal use. It's not quite as willy-nilly. <laughs> Avidly <laughs> enthusiastically. Some surgeries can cause blood to pool in certain parts of the body. Yep. So surgeons will sometimes put a leech on a person's body to drain the blood away that's accumulating there, which allows fresh blood to move in and help the area heal. Yep. That leeches help the blood flow.
1: Yeah, they can they can deal with areas of basically blood backup. Yes. Where it is gathering, where you don't want it to gather so they can
0: get rid of the traffic jam. So leeches are actively used and not just like the chemicals they make, which are also used, but the leeches themselves. Doctors will use leeches. By
1: the way, that is absolutely my nightmare is that I will be in an accident someday (laughs) and I wake up in the hospital and like turn to thank whoever saved me and I'll be covered in leeches that they're treating me on your
0: shoulder where (laughs) where it was broken like no 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 No, no. (laughs) put me back under (laughs) take the arm take it (laughs) now uh it should be stressed at this point most blood-sucking animals are not a threat to humans no most of the time it's a little bite even if you get bitten it's a bite they take a tiny bit of blood because they are tiny animals and they move on it's a nuisance at worst typically unless you somehow become just fear factor style covered in leeches Mm -hmm. you're not gonna lose enough blood for it to really be a problem as long as it's a little bit the main danger and indeed the main reason why blood-eating animals are important to human study is because blood eaters tend to spread diseases yeah
1: there's a reason that you know blood-borne pathogens is a thing you have to learn about if you're working in public jobs a lot of the time. Yes. Bloodborne, b- blood is a great
0: way to transfer and catch disease. Yeah, well, it's like you're, how you're not supposed to share your needles yep. for like your insulin shots and stuff. Because yeah, blood carries all sorts of pathogens and diseases. And so if you are, say, for example, a mosquito that lands on one animal and connects to their bloodstream, and then goes and lands on another animal and connects, you can transmit diseases between. Yep, yep. Typically, this is just incidental. It can just be whatever happens to go in there. Although there are parasites that require this for their life cycles. Malarial parasites need to go through a mosquito into another vertebrate host in order to do their malaria thing.
1: Yeah, that the mosquito is part of their developmental yeah, cycle. Just
0: like the mosquito needs blood to reproduce, the malaria needs the malarial microbe needs to be taken up into a mosquito and then transferred to another host in order to reproduce and fulfill its life cycle. Yep. Which is just the bleh. Well and
1: I've uh one of the things I came across when taking notes for symbiotes is that they talked about that malaria has often been an example as a commensal uh, symbiotic relationship with the mosquito because it's just riding the mosquito. Right. But there has been some evidence that it actually does modify the mosquito a bit. Yeah. That it does affect the mosquito. So it might actually be not only parasitic to us if it gets in us, but also to the mosquito it is yeah. riding.
0: It's just a bad news for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> it's a jerk. <laughs> so once again, symbiosis. We've got our blood suckers that are parasites on their hosts which themselves can also carry and transmit yet more parasites and pathogens. Certain mosquitoes are famous for carrying malaria, West Nile virus, Zika virus, and others. Fleas will famously carry tapeworms. Uh, That's often a concern for pets, especially. And even more famously, the plague, transmitted by fleas. Ticks are well known for spreading Lyme disease, especially if you're in a part of the world like we are, where Lyme disease can be a real problem. Uh, kissing bugs spread chagas disease sandflies can spread leishmaniasis bats vampire bats now this isn't unique to vampire bats but just like any mammal biting uh, other mammals can spread rabies yes so there's pl- there I-, I guess one way to look at it is that there are a lot of parasites and pathogens that love just how much diversity there is in blood-eating animals
1: yeah that have taken advantage of what a successful lifestyle Yes, sanguivory is.
0: Sanguivores is an evolutionary answer to the fact that blood is super abundant and that there's a bunch of different ways you can access it. These are pathogens that have taken advantage of that success. Yes, to spread around their various hosts and spread diseases. And and some of these diseases are you know, truly horrifying. Like malaria is one of the most infamous ones on the planet. Malaria is, I might still be, I definitely read that malaria has at some points been the most deadly disease yeah. on Earth. So it, yeah, that, there's a reason,
1: the study of these organisms is not only because they're fascinating, but for some, especially for some parts of the world,
0: it is paramount. Yes. This is the reason why mosquitoes are have often been cited as the most dangerous animal on the planet. Because they serve as a vector. They're not really doing anything directly, but they are carrying these awful diseases. Yes, yes, yes. Now, I do want to take a little note, just a moment here, to address the follow-up question that often comes. Yep. uh, Which is, why don't we just get rid of all the blood-sucking animals? Because, buh. And it's important to note again, most bloodsuckers are not dangerous to people. No. But also, blood-sucking animals tend to be really important components of their ecosystems.
1: Yeah, like foundational for a lot of them yes
0: not only are they part of the world's biodiversity and thus just as worthy of our study and interest as anything else but yeah mosquitoes and leeches and lampreys are food for lots of other animals yeah like leeches are often food for the kinds of animals that they prey upon Mm -hmm. mosquitoes are an essential food source for bats yep so there's all sorts of ecological importance that a lot of these blood-sucking animals serve. I know that uh, many
1: mosquitoes also are important pollinators. Yes. For the males, and the, when the females aren't drinking blood, they're going from plant to plant, which means they very likely could be transporting pollen.
0: Yes. Which is a really interesting note to build upon what you pointed out earlier, is that mosquitoes are a great example of an animals that are only occasionally doing the blood-drinking thing the rest of the time they're playing a different role yes in their environment one that we don't notice because it doesn't involve
1: us yes because we don't pollinate yeah they don't make honey so we don't <laughs> we don't benefit directly you know monetarily from what they're doing and we only notice them when they bite us
0: <laughs> one other quick note while we're still discussing the diversity of blood-eating organisms i looked and did not find any examples of blood-eating plants oh yeah there are carnivorous plants episode 105 that just eat whole animals I was a little surprised to not find any reports of plants that suck up blood yeah huh now I it maybe I missed it if anyone out there knows about blood eating plants besides Audrey 2. yep or the things we created during spooky yeah or, or the the
1: vampire vines or the yeah uh, the, the funeral old, flower funeral and there's also the the story the um the something. Orchid. Uh, oh, yeah. That was yes, one of the that. first novels. Yeah, like, there's a whole bunch of
0: stories
1: <laughs> of blood-drinking plants, but,
0: yeah. Apparently huh. not. This is an animal thing. Weird. Now, with all of this discussion of the diversity of blood eaters and the impacts of blood eaters, we are now ready, I think, to get into discussions about evolutionary trends in sanguivary starting with the answer to the question, what does it take to feed on blood? Yeah. Because, as it turns out, it's not easy to be a sanguivore.
1: Well, like when we were mentioning uh, gut flora, to be able to eat different things takes some major adaptations. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to eat plants, you need to be able to break down plants. If you want to eat meat, you need to digest it before it rots
0: in your belly. Yeah. Blood is a whole nother category. Major shift. Of food. So, after this short break, we're going to start out by talking about the pros and cons of a diet of blood.
1: I hear immortality is one of the biggest ones.
0: That's one of the best ones. Just you wait. So for any of our listeners out there who are considering becoming vampires, (laughs) a pros-cons list. Pros of eating blood. Uh, Number one, it's full of nutrients. Yep. It is a nutritional soup. It's nature's protein shake. (laughs) Number two, it's liquid and thus easy to digest. No chewing. You don't have to worry about chewing. You don't have to worry about breaking down, you know, cell walls and, well, not very many cell walls. Breaking down plant material and things like a lot of animals have to do
1: you have the process solid matter
0: also easy to come by it's everywhere it's a secret formula but it's not hard to come by (laughs) it's all over the place and constantly renewed
1: that is true
0: if you are a parasite who drinks blood you land on a big animal you take a little bit it'll be replenished tomorrow these, these walk in fuel pumps just keep making more blood.
1: Man, Sanguivore's hit on renewable resources way <laughs> before we did. That's right.
0: Now, before you go out uh, searching for you know, Brad Pitt and Taika Waititi and whoever. As I was gonna say, getting your cape ready. Right. <laughs> Hold on. There are some downsides. You should be aware. Before your child gets into vampirism, make sure they know. Cons of blood eating. Blood is low in a lot of important stuff. Mm-hmm. Low in vitamins, low in carbohydrates, low in fats, which is part of the reason why certain blood eaters need to really stay on the diet. Vampire bats uh, notoriously have to eat half their body weight every night. Yeah. There's no fats for you to store in your fat reserves. It's just a straight shot of nutrient.
1: Yeah, you're, you're not getting that long-lasting uh, molecules
0: that you can burn for a while afterward. Yep. And there are certain things you're just straight up not getting. Like certain vitamins, like a lot of carbohydrates. Blood is also full of stuff you don't actually want. hmm Most evidently water. Like we mentioned before, blood is mostly water, which means that that's a lot of excess that you're getting that you can't really use.
1: There's a reason that when humans eat blood, we typically cook it down. You know, blood yes. pudding, we've boiled it until it is... A pudding that
0: you can eat. Blood also, vertebrate blood in particular, is filled with toxic amounts of iron. Oh, good point. If you just drink a cup of blood, that's a lot of iron going into your system, which can cause all sorts of diseases and disorders, and also magneto might come after you. Yeah, oh yeah, no, like you make yourself a real target. <laughs> it's so bizarre to think that like,
1: if I were to drink a you know, a it's stein a sh- yep. of blood, uh, I would get sick because of the iron, even though it's in my yeah. blood. But too that... much, too much blood will kill you yes. if ingested. Because it's where it's supposed to be when it's in
0: my arteries and veins. Yep. <laughs> not supposed to go in your tummy. It's not meant to be there. Also, speaking of bad stuff you don't want that's in blood, diseases. Yeah. As we mentioned, especially if you're feeding on something close to you. This is probably the biggest problem with the idea of vampires, like, a person being a vampire. I guess if you're dead, it doesn't matter. Yeah, that's uh, the, the undead aspect really, <laughs> really circumvents a really lot of the issues. You. But yeah, your own species is the most likely source to find diseases that can infect you. Yeah, most times you get sick, it's from another human. Yep. <laughs> And the other big downside of drinking blood is that while it's easy to find, it can be hard to access. Yeah,
1: I guess I don't want to give and you my yep. blood.
0: <laughs> because most animals that have it want to hold on to it. It's selfish. So, sanguivores have come up with a variety of different strategies to get around some of these problems. And the thing that is most exciting about this, I think is that a lot of these strategies have evolved convergently over and over again. Yeah. So Convergent Evolution, episode 70, the process of the same sort of thing evolving independently. Not only has blood eating evolved many times, but the same strategies for doing it have evolved many times. Yes. similar mechanisms of sanguivory. Cool. Step one, get to your prey. A lot of sanguivores have special sensory methods For detecting prey, often chemical and temperature clues. I've seen references to a lot of invertebrates tracking carbon dioxide Mm -hmm. that is breathed out by the hosts of the blood that they want. Vampire bats are a really interesting case because common vampire bats have smaller leaf noses than a lot of other bats because that's a a structure that functions in echolocation. Mm -hmm. And they're not hunting with echolocation, so it's not as important. But common vampire bats have heat-sensing pits. Yeah, they do! Kind of like snakes do. Which, oh! So they can detect not only the body heat of a prey animal, if you're hunting in the dark, which is a great way to not get noticed, but also you can detect where the blood vessels are under the skin. Yeah, where they're close to the surface and full of warm yeah. blood. By the warmth of the blood, <sighs> which is super cool.
1: Vampire bats are so awesome. I love them. <laughs> they... they are very likely my favorite bat. Oh, they're so good.
0: Very, very cool. Another strategy for accessing a host is that a lot of sanguivores tend to be really sneaky <laughs> because that's part of the trick is not getting noticed because you're a parasite and most hosts don't want you on them.
1: Well, yeah, no, life in general is opposed to parasites. Even parasites yeah. are opposed <laughs> to having parasites. No one wants a parasite. And yet... So you have to be sneaky to be a parasite, which is so much of life.
0: (laughs) Most parasites tend to be very small, as we mentioned. They tend to be quiet uh, and kind of creeping around. Mm -hmm. A lot of blood drinkers uh, are known to hang out in places that are frequented by their hosts. So they'll hang out in nests and shelters and burrows and homes. You mentioned leeches hanging out on the edge of leaves. Ticks will also do that. Yeah, they'll
1: wave their little arms around.
0: They gather at the tip of grass blades and sticks and leaves and just wait for something to brush against it. That's how you pick up ticks when you're walking through the forest.
1: Yeah, well, like when you go play in a field or walk through a field, that's why people will be like, all right, check yourself for ticks. Yep. Because you, you very likely picked up one or two as hitchhikers mm-hmm. that were just waiting in ambush at the tips of
0: grass blades. Yep. Because uh, ticks can't jump. Fleas can jump, mosquitoes can fly Ticks have to just hold on But I've got eight (laughs) little legs and they're all hooks So
1: they just have to wait for you to get close enough for them to grab you
0: Vampire bats are very sneaky You see them like creeping and crawling Mm -hmm. around Mosquitoes, I'm always amazed by how gentle a mosquito is Yes Because I've had them land on me I have been a victim And yeah, you don't even feel it most of the time They are very delicate little animals one particular example that I'm going to share some specifics because it's really cool. White-winged vampire bats feed on birds. And the way that they'll often do this is they'll find a bird roosting in a tree on a branch. The bat will crawl on the underside of the branch
2: <laughs> and
0: nip at the toes of the bird as it's clutching the branch. They just pick at the hangnails. Yeah, at the, uh, the hallux, the backward-pointing toe oftentimes. Oh, uh, Nice. So these are, they will crawl underneath the branch because they're bats. Yep. And get it without being noticed.
1: Oh, man. See, people writing vampire fiction, up your game and start (laughs) including white-winged
0: vampire bat stuff into your lore. You want an even better, better one? So white-winged vampire bats in the wild will feed on birds, but they will also feed on domestic birds, Mm -hmm. like chickens and stuff. I read about reports Of of white-winged vampire bats doing the following. So hens, domestic hens, have a patch of skin on their body that's called a brood patch. Where chicks, when they have chicks, the chicks will snuggle up against the brood patch for warmth Mm -hmm, mm because it's a little pat. There's no feathers in the way. White-winged vampire bats have been observed crawling up to the hens and snuggling up to the brood patch, which triggers a maternal response <laughs> so the hen just kind of settles in because it feels like it's there's a chick nestled up against it and the bats will feed on the brood patch
1: oh. they will
0: mimic the chicks to gain access to the blood-filled hen
1: come on people let's make vampires scary again
0: <laughs> i also read a report uh, one report of these bats crawling onto the backs of hens to eat at the back of their head or their neck. <laughs> and the feeling of the bat up there triggers a response in hens to being mounted during mating that they just sit and wait patiently for the mating to be over. And while they do that, the bats just eat blood from their heads.
1: Oh, See, now that's like the the classic... I hypnotize you I right? make you think I'm your lover. <laughs> and, oh,
0: white-winged vampire bat! So cool. Oh. So cool. And, of course, uh, sort of the once you have finally gone up to your host, following in the, the note of being sneaky, many vampires, many blood eaters, have painless bites. Yes. Very delicate. The vampire bats have very sharp, thin teeth. Mosquitoes have their little pokers. Yeah,
1: I've heard that vampire bat teeth are painless because they're so sharp the incision is perfect yeah there's no tearing there's no pressure it just sink sink it's the anime thing of the cut that you don't notice until it
0: slides (laughs) it's just so so sharp and this is helped by saliva Mm -hmm. which brings us to the next part strategies once you're actually drinking the blood one thing that has shown up over and over and over again across all sorts of different sanguivores is specialized saliva containing compounds that help with the task. Yep. Including anesthetic. Compounds that dull the pain, that numb the area, just like when you go to the dentist and they numb your mouth for something. That happened to me today. Anesthetic Saliva has been seen in insects, leeches, snails, vampire bats. This has shown up over and over again. Because even if your bite is painless, sitting there and feeding for a length, that's hard
1: to not at least make it noticeable. Yes. So if my spit also numbs you after that painless bite, Mm -hmm. then you're even less likely to notice as I lap
0: up your lifeblood. In some blood-sucking insects, it's also been noted that saliva is unusually low on digestive enzymes, probably, presumably, to avoid extra damage to the host.
1: Yeah.
0: You don't want to put a bunch of digestive enzymes in there because it's just causing extra damage. Irritation to the area. Yep. We're keeping it minimal. One, a phrase that I came across while reading about blood suckers is that it benefits a blood-sucking animal to minimize contact with the host (laughs) because yeah if you're noticed because if you're noticed there are a few things that can happen one is that your host just leaves the other is that you get kicked or stepped on or swatted or something because you are small so if you can avoid being noticed without causing it, drawing extra attention to yourself that is best probably the most famous feature of saliva in blood-sucking animals are anticoagulating compounds. Yeah. Coagulation is when blood solidifies.
1: Yes. Clots. This is what keeps you from bleeding out when you get a cut.
0: Yes, if you get a cut, your blood clots to stop the blood from flowing. Anticoagulants interfere with that process. This is important uh, for keeping the blood flowing, right? You don't want it to clot up because now you can't get any more blood. Now you have to make another hole. Yep. But, and I had never thought about this, also important for keeping the blood flowing inside your body. Yeah, cuz
1: if it clots in your belly, yeah,
0: <laughs> then that's you could be-, be in trouble or in your mouth parts. Yeah. Like if you're a mosquito and you've got a straw, you don't want it clotting and clogging the straw cuz then you're done. Yeah. And uh, now your your mouth is full. Well, yeah, you're suffocating, you're <laughs> you're drowning on it. So blood cl- stopping, blood clotting is beneficial for getting it and digesting it. Incidentally, blood clotting is a complex process that involves many different chemical reactions, which means there are many different ways to interfere with it. Yeah. So all sorts of different sanguivores have come up with all sorts of different strategies. Some have antiplatelet compounds that interfere with platelets, which are the, the little cell fragments that help with clotting. Some have compounds that break down the proteins that are important for clotting others have vasodilators that cause the blood vessels to expand cuz when your blood is trying to clot it will also usually your body will constrict the blood vessels to make it easier to clot make the... it easier make it tighter yes exactly so a lot of blood suckers will have vasodilators which keeps the blood flowing so even if it's
1: trying to clot you're mo- you're moving the walls apart yep <laughs> so the <laughs> space is
0: getting wider interestingly enough Not only do, like, bats and insects and snails have different compounds for doing this, even closely related species, like, different species of mosquitoes will have different strategies in their chemical compounds. Fascinating. And then, of course, probably the most famous anticoagulants among these blood-sucking animals is a compound called Herudin from leeches. Yep. Which is especially potent, very good, and in fact... That's one of the ones that we humans synthesize mm-hmm. for medical use. Anticoagulants blood... and, and anesthetics, we will base on what we find in the, the saliva of blood-eating animals. Yeah,
1: because blood clots in the wrong spot inside your body, not at an opening, yes. can be very, very
0: dangerous. Yeah, some of these are used to help uh, treat or prevent strokes. Yep. As well as other uses. There are other compounds as well. Uh, some animals, so I saw this cited for certain ticks and mosquitoes, and I think also the snails, will have uh, vasoconstrictors to constrict the blood vessels when they want to increase the blood pressure. So this is, what is it, Bernoulli's principle, where you reduce the the area of your tube and it causes the fluid to flow faster. Yeah, because... Like when you put your thumb over the end of a mm -hmm. hose and it shoots the water out. Because if you're moving a
1: certain amount of fluid through an opening and you decrease the size of that opening, but you don't decrease the amount of fluid moving, it has to move through at a greater pressure to
0: get it through at the same pace you were moving it. So vasoconstriction can help increase the blood pressure, which just means more blood quickly coming to you. Yeah. There are compounds, uh, this was one I saw for the vampire snails, that break down tissues. So this is a case where they are trying to break down tissues to do damage to get more blood. And compounds like hyaluronidase... Which help the saliva spread. Oh. So it, well, this is like, we talked about this in Venom in episode 97, that a lot of Venoms, and some would count these as Venoms, a lot of Venoms have compounds that help the venom spread better to get the effects more widely dispersed.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like if I just envenomate your cheek, you know, then, well, that might not do much, but if I can get it spread around all the vital stuff.
0: Here it's well. Let instead of this one little pinpoint where my mouth is, let's spread it around this general area. Keep the blood moving. Mm-hmm. There are also a lot of strategies we see in blood eaters for not getting hurt. Yeah. So not only being stealthy, but particular behavioral things and physiological things to avoid getting attacked by your host. One study of tsetse flies found that they went after adult cows more often than calves. Likely because calves are more likely to thrash about or swing their tails or their ears or stuff. Adults are more blasé about it. Yeah,
1: yeah. Go after the ones who are less likely to care.
0: Yes, exactly. (laughs) A lot of permanent feeders, like fleas and ticks, tend to have flat bodies Often no wings and short antennae, which help them not get groomed off or get damaged by the hair and feathers surrounding them.
1: Well, this is why you need that specialized flea comb. Like, yes. It, typically, a comb would get most things out of a fur, but these things are almost equivalent to the width of your dog or cat's hair. So you need
0: combs whose spaces are... Just barely that. Because they have adapted to not get caught during grooming. Yeah. Because a lot of, most animals will groom themselves, especially for parasites. And fleas and ticks and mites will often have claws and hooks to attach to their host. <laughs> it's like those island lizards that
1: hang on to trees yep. <laughs> during the hurricanes.
0: <laughs> so that when you use your hair dryer, yeah. they don't get blown off. Hold! Now, ticks, a couple extra notes about ticks. This first part I knew that their mouthparts have hooks on them yep. to embed the mouth part in the skin of the host so that it's harder to pull them away. This second part I did not know, and it might be the worst thing I learned while doing all this research. Some ticks, their saliva, in addition to all the other compounds we talked about, have a special cement <laughs> that <laughs> adheres them to the host body. Oh, oh wow. I hate that so much. Oh. In my notes, I wrote, I took a note on that and I wrote it down and I said, ticks have a special salivary cement. And then in parentheses, I wrote, ah,
1: yeah, and that's,
0: uh, uh, this, uh,
1: this is like the things that xenomorphs excrete onto <laughs> their pe- people. Just all that
0: cement like goo. Yeah, oh. Fascinating, incredible, amazing, awful. I hate it. There are also a lot of strategies that blood eaters use to deal with all those cons inside the blood. Mm-hmm. As you mentioned, it is very common for blood-eating animals to be really efficient at getting rid of water. Yes, uh, Mosquitoes, like we mentioned, that are excreting the leftovers out the other end while they're feeding. Tsetse flies reportedly can shed almost half of their meal weight in the first 30 minutes.
2: Mm-hmm. Just
0: getting rid of all that excess water. Vampire bats... Uh, Very famously will pee a bunch, often while they're feeding. Yeah. So you'll see uh, the ones like on trees, they'll be feeding on their host and then just stick a leg out and pee while they're feeding to just as quickly as possible get rid of that water. See, update that vampire lore. Because (laughs) (laughs) not only is that extra water not necessary, but if you're an animal like a fly or a bat... That's also weighing you down. Yeah.
1: Water's heavy. Yep. And if you if you eat a large meal and most of it, as our blood is, is water, not only is that a lot of weight, but it also means the amount of nutrition you got for that weight is pretty small. Yeah. So get rid of the water and maximize the
0: nutrition to weight ratio. Yep. It just goes right through you. <laughs> Many blood feeders also have processes that help them break down or excrete excess iron. Ah, cool. And a lot of this process is helped by gut microbes. Last episode, we talked a bunch about your microbiome that helps you digest your food. A lot of blood eaters have specific microbes in their guts that help them break down the components of blood. Also, many blood eaters have special microbes in their gut that provide the stuff that the blood is missing. (gasps) For example... Blood does not have vitamin B, which animals need to turn food into energy. So a lot of sanguivores have vitamin B-producing microbes in their gut so that they can get it. That's awesome! In fact, a 2021 study that I I looked at found that ticks inherit these microbes from their mothers. (sighs) That these microbes are passed down, just like we pass down certain microbes to our babies when they are born from, you know, parents of humans and other mammals.
2: That's so cool. Yeah.
0: Also, also, blood eaters tend to have very strong immune systems and gut microbes that help fend off pathogens to ward against all those diseases that they've got coming in from the blood that they're drinking.
1: This, it's so fantastic what a surprisingly complicated meal blood is.
0: Right? Well, like you said, it's specialized. Mm-hmm. Like changing from meat to plants, you just have to change a bunch of stuff about the way your body deals with your food.
1: Yeah, the, these categories of diet are A, B, and C. You can't just transition willy-nilly because the properties of each is
0: fundamentally
1: different from the other.
0: And if you're going to dedicate your entire feeding strategy to blood, you got to take some precautions.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, and it's, it's the same thing we see in, like, hypercarnivores. Are also very specialized. Their mm-hmm. digestive system is fundamentally different because you're missing stuff if you only ever
0: eat meat. Yep. Well, the same similar what we see in teeth. Mm-hmm. Teeth become very specialized, especially in mammals and some dinosaurs for their diet. Absolutely.
1: Also, and just this entire episode is just me rewriting my personal vampire mm-hmm. canon. I want vampires to deal with the excess iron by strengthening their teeth and nails.
0: Or like shrews and yeah,
1: scorpions. So that they have the hard claws and
0: hard-tipped teeth. I love it. Yeah, there we go. So, if you... Uh, back to our how we started this section. If you're thinking about becoming a vampire and drinking lots of blood but not becoming undead, all you need to do is have some specialized gut microbes and pee a whole lot. Yep. And be really sneaky. And maybe get some salivary... All you have to do is either go steal anticoagulants <laughs> and anesthetics from the hospital and like swish them around in your mouth <laughs> before you bite, or you get them straight from the source and just get a bunch of leeches,
1: yeah, oh, and put no, them in there. No, that no. way you
0: got it. You just ch- just chew them up a little no, bit, and then you can. All right,
1: no. Mm-mm, so mm-mm.
0: we've talked about sort of what the the end point evolutionary strategies, right? What do we see today that? Bloodsuckers have evolved, but we can hardly go through an entire episode of this podcast without diving into the fossil record. Oh boy. Which brings up, of course, the question, are there sanguivores in the fossil record? Are there? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh, there are so many. I was nervous. I was so, I was very surprised (laughs) because I, well, because behavior is so hard to study and parasites, as we've talked about, are very rare in the fossil record compared to how common they are. In ecosystems. Yes. And they tend to be small and delicate. So my assumption was, yeah, we probably don't get a lot of evidence of blood feeding. And that is true. But boy, do we get some cool evidence of blood feeding in the fossil record. Cool. Here are some examples. Let's start with vampire bats, because there are several known extinct species of vampire bats. They all belong to the genus Desmodus, which is the same genus as the modern common vampire bat. These fossil species have been found in North and South America. The oldest are late Pliocene, around 2 million years ago. Okay. 2-3 million years ago. So, they go back a, a decent ways. These include the largest vampire bat species known to have ever existed. The giant vampire bat, Desmodus draculae. Yeah! From Central and South America... I know, I mentioned before that the largest vampire bats today get up to one and a half ounces. Desmodus Draculae clocks in at an estimated colossal two ounces. I, oh, man. Can you imagine? <laughs> I mean, that is like 50% more. Oh, yeah. Like, that's basic. That's twice
1: as big as the <laughs> ones we have now.
0: 30%. Technically, <laughs> I, I what I read is that the modern ones come in at just under one and a half, and Dracula comes in at just over two. So it's like a fifty percent right, right. increase. So, okay, fifty percent. Sixty grams. Uh a wingspan estimated at fifty centimeters or twenty inches, which is actually pretty substantial.
1: Yeah, no, that that is like from the when I've seen pictures of today flying and hopping around, like, that's it's it's a pretty tiny bat. That's a tiny bat. It's itty bitty and it's cute. And they have little wingspan, But like that bat, I'd notice that that's bat. a if, half
0: meter wingspan. That's yeah, if, I, if that flew through the air, I'd be like, woo, that's, <laughs> that's a bat. It has been suggested that these particularly large vampire bats were dining on larger prey Yeah, to get more blood. And indeed, they are often found in association with large animals like horses and famously ground sloths.
1: Oh, right. We
0: talked about this in a news several episodes ago of a, it was this species, Desmodus dracula, I believe, found in a giant ground sloth burrow. Yes, I forgot that's where it was found. Yep. And again, there's no direct evidence, but the implication being that perhaps they were feeding on mega mammals, mm-hmm. which is a great way to get a little bit of extra blood.
1: This is why we need to introduce vampire bats and elephants
0: together more regularly. I want... For those big... Well, we got to get them at like to whales. Yes. Just hang around here where the whales breach. Yeah. I want (laughs) giant vampire bats. There are fossil lampreys. There are only a handful. We've talked about these on the podcast before. They're They're known from the Cretaceous, the Carboniferous, and the Devonian. The oldest one, reported in 2006, seems to be parasitic already in the Devonian. There are fossil leeches, which is very surprising, given how soft and squishy leeches are. Uh-huh. Will's also making an uncomfortable face. I uh, was like,
1: how long is it uh, when, when do we have leeches wrong? Leeches
0: are rare uh, in the fossil record, because they're soft and they're mm-hmm. parasites. There are some body fossils of leeches and cocoons. Oh, that makes sense. Leeches form cocoons, and so you will get fossilized cocoons. I do remember reading about those. Leech-like cocoons are found all over the world as far back as the Triassic period. So they have been around and, based on what we see in the various anatomy and what we know of leech evolution, likely parasitic for at least 200 million years. And there is one report of possible leech fossils from the Silurian, which is twice as old as that. So, leeches have been with us in all sorts of ecosystems for hundreds of millions of years. No escape. There is no... You can't even escape to the Paleozoic. They're waiting for you there. With their (laughs) teeth and... (laughs) But, once again, the champions of of fossilized bloodsuckers are insects and other arthropods. There are plenty of examples of fossilized arthropods... The oldest known tick, as of 2001, where the paper I read was from, is from Cretaceous Amber in New Jersey, 90 million years ago. And there are, as as it was reported in one study, hundreds of fossil species of blood-sucking insects known from all continents (laughs) except Antarctica. In the late Jurassic, there is a species named Paleoarthroteles mesozoicus, identified as a relative of snipe flies. The females have mouthparts suggesting blood feeding, like modern mosquitoes. The Cretaceous fossil record, mostly amber, gives us mosquitoes, horseflies, sandflies, biting midges, blackflies. Dipterans had made it to blood feeding by the Cretaceous. Lice and lice eggs are known in amber back to the Eocene. There are flea-like insects from the Mesozoic that might be the ancestors of fleas. Cool. There has also been lots of discussion about what these blood sucking animals were blood sucking, yeah, because lose blood yep and of because the temptation right the want, the desire is to say they were feeding on dinosaurs, yep because uh, oh because of course we love the idea of animals feeding on dinosaurs, and indeed that's probably true I in mean, large part surely during the age of the dinosaurs, you would s- think something was drinking their blood. <laughs> Some researchers have pointed out that a bloodsucker could focus on the soft parts of the skin to avoid scale, so like near the eyes or the cloaca. I've seen reports of insects from the Cretaceous with big mouthparts for potentially for big hosts. (laughs) (laughs) And I think this really cool that we now know that a lot of dinosaurs probably had high metabolisms and, quote, warm blood. So even animals today that would focus on warm-blooded vertebrates like mammals and birds could have been doing similar things back then.
1: Yeah, the dynamic may have been very, very similar to bloodsuckers and mammals today with dinosaurs back then.
0: And there is at least one case I know, I've read about of a flea-like insect that has been suggested to be a pterosaur parasite.
2: Oh, right, yeah. Which, of
0: course, yeah, of course there would be pterosaur parasites. Uh, this is a great point for us to take a little sidebar and remind you from episode 34 and 35 that the blood does not... In these insects-preserved DNA remains, we can't actually use them to bring dinosaurs back. Sorry, everybody. Nope, nope, nope. (gasps) Even more interesting than the fact that we have fossilized bloodsuckers is that we have a surprising amount of evidence for fossil bloodsucking disease transmission. Really? There is one case of a female sandfly in Cretaceous Amber, 100 million years old, with the remains of its blood meal in its gut including, like, what's left of cells, like, blood cells, with trypanosomes, microbes, similar to the modern ones that cause leishmaniasis, including some that have infected the cells. There is one case of a tick in Dominican amber surrounded by blood, uh, which was identified as monkey blood. (sighs) Likely it was picked off during grooming, including red blood cells that are infected with Lyme disease-like parasites, Malarial parasites are known from blood-sucking insects and amber back to the Cretaceous. I saw one report of infective nematodes from black flies and Baltic amber from the Eocene, and many others. So not only do we have fossil evidence of sanguivorous animals, but we have direct fossil evidence of the biggest problem with sanguivorous animals. But we have direct fossil evidence of the parasites of those parasites hitching rides between hosts. Very cool.
1: Yeah, it's it, not only is it fascinating that sanguivory is so common today, but also that it goes back so far, but also that a lot of the dynamics that we see today have been established, and we have very good evidence of them being established
0: yeah. for a long time. Which is very cool stuff. Yeah. So we know sanguivores have been around for a long time. We know that the evolution of sanguivory, of hematophagy, goes back as far as the Paleozoic in animals, if not farther in some mysterious things we haven't found yet. But there is not much in the way of fossils to show us how sanguivory evolves. We know they were there. We know how far back they go. We know what kind of strategies sanguivores have evolved to deal with blood meals. But when the question comes up of how does sanguivory come about... Mostly we have to use what we can see in modern ecosystems. I've seen lots of interesting discussion and hypotheses, mostly revolving around insects and bats. Yeah. So let's start with insects, because with insects and other arthropods, there have been suggested many different ways that they could evolve sanguivory. most of which have probably happened, <laughs> given how common sanguivory is among arthropods.
1: I love situations like that where it's like, all right, here are a number of different hypothetical ways that this could have evolved. They've probably all happened multiple times.
0: Yep. (laughs) So there are a few different avenues that have been hypothesized for how arthropods evolve to be blood eaters. One avenue is that they may have started out feeding on other parts of vertebrate animals. So there are lots of bugs today that will feed on dung, skin, hair, feathers, this puts them in close proximity with vertebrates, many in prime situation for them to transition into blood-eating. There are many beetles today that will feed on large animal debris, on stuff on animals, and sometimes take blood. Mm-hmm. Also, lice and mites. There are examples of they will feed on debris on the, the dead skin cells, the hair, the feathers, and then sometimes take blood.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's the the evolutionary equivalent of blood. it has a taste for blood yes <laughs> and
0: it, well and if now if you're getting a new nutritious meal that no one else is tapping into or that you already have the biting mouthparts to do uh, there's selective pressure to get that mm-hmm. extra nutrients yeah
1: each each a member of your group that digests that blood better is mm-hmm. going to get a benefit from drinking more
0: blood Ticks, I read, are thought to likely have originated feeding on cell contents. Yeah. Like we talked about with mites before, and then transitioned to blood, which makes total... Yeah, if you're already sucking up fluids from inside the body, blood is right there. No, you're just pumping this stuff around, (laughs) I don't have to pop nothing? It's also been pointed out that uh, for bugs that use animal burrows or dung for food or for reproduction... Right, there are a lot of bugs that will lay their eggs in dung. Being close to the animals that produce the dung is very beneficial. And if you can feed off of that animal, then you never have to leave it. Yeah. So it's been proposed that it could be that one selective pressure for blood feeding is that, yeah, if you need to be nearby this animal anyway, if you can just drink straight from this body, then you never have to leave until it's time to lay eggs. Yep, 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 yep. Another potential avenue that has been suggested is that sanguivores may have evolved from insect-eating ancestors. Insect-hunting bugs, there are lots of insects that hunt other insects, often have mouthparts for cutting and piercing. They often already have enzymes for digesting animal matter. And it's easy to conceptualize the transition from eating animals to then piercing and draining animals of their contents. Yes. I mean, there are animals to... I mean, spiders episode 123, we talked about how they are basically piercing and draining as part of their feeding mechanism anyway.
1: Yeah, like, they, they are feeding in a very similar manner. They're just liquefying the insides, not just the already liquid parts. Yes.
0: And it's been noted that bugs often gather near big vertebrate animals, in burrows and in wet places and stuff like that. So if a species is hunting those bugs it's going to end up in close proximity to these vertebrates where it could potentially transition to using those mouth parts to feeding on the vertebrates instead of just on the insects.
1: Yeah, I'm also thinking of things like uh, assassin bugs that Mm -hmm. hunt insects, but they do it with a piercing mouth part. Yes. Like,
0: yeah, just pierce something else. Uh, I've seen it noted that this avenue is thought to be how potentially how some flies did it, And also fleas are cousins of insect-eating bugs. Really? So it could be that fleas followed a similar route as well. Who knew? And then the other avenue, and this is the first one that came to my mind when I first started reading this, is plant-eating. Hmm. A lot of plant-eating bugs have mouthparts already adapted for sucking up fluids, nectar and fruit juices and stuff, and oftentimes for piercing the skin of fruits. Mm Mm-hmm. That if you already have to get through a tough skin to suck out the juices inside, that's basically the job. You're doing the same mechanical task. Yes. And as we mentioned before, mosquitoes mostly eat plant juices. The vampire moths also mainly eat fruit. So these are two groups where it seems like that may have been... You were already well adapted for eating blood even before you started eating blood. (laughs) You're good at eating the juices of...
1: fleshy bodies yep
0: (laughs) that's yeah it's not that different just because one's (laughs) moving also it's been pointed out that i mentioned before that uh some bloodsuckers will use carbon dioxide to track their hosts apparently some insects will also track carbon dioxide to find nectar oh really so even the sensory apparatus is already good for doing this job you could evolve into
1: it's interesting because you know we emphasized earlier that digesting blood is a very different task mm-hmm. from digesting other foods. But the process of hunting blood yeah. is not really that bizarre. Like the things you're doing, you know, even the things you're mentioning about being stealthy and mm-hmm. being unnoticeable, well, that predators, like yeah, any hunter has to be those two things. Typically, yeah. if you're hunting bugs, you have to be really sneaky to, to sneak up on a bug. Yeah. Like, so the process of going to get your food is not that different from other things that have to seek it out. Yeah. But dealing
0: with it is where it gets different. Yes. So in these cases, once these lineages hit upon the benefits of getting a blood meal, then your selective pressures can take over for adapting the digestive system and all that for doing it better and better. Yes. Because it could be a thing where you're
1: not able to really feed on blood, but a taste of it gives you a, you get enough of it. You get something from the blood. Oh yeah. There's a benefit there.
0: Well, like we said, tons of blood feeders are only part-time blood feeders. Yeah. So if you don't rely on it for your entire diet, then you don't necessarily have to worry about all those other problems.
1: I wonder if there are any examples that went after blood for the water content. If there was ever a situation Hmm. of like in a desert, yeah. That, <laughs> I don't like, know. This is a good source of water, actually. That wouldn't surprise me. And then realize, oh, there's also tasty stuff in here, if it, for those <laughs> of us that can digest
0: it. Interesting.
1: Uh, that'd be very. That'd be funny if it were. If it
0: went backwards. I also found a 2010 study of vampire moths that found that comparing the ones that eat blood to the ones that don't, one of the differences was that the blood eaters have reduced olfactory senses. They're worse smellers. And the way the study explained this is to suggest that most moths respond to the smell of a large animal by going the other way. So reducing your smelling ability in some of these moths, for whatever reason, might have led to more interactions with large vertebrates. It may have been a precursor because if you're not interacting with them, it's now it's never going to have you're never going to evolve to feed on them if you're never in proximity with them. Exactly. So one of the precursors to the development of blood feeding in these mods might have been just a change that allowed them to be close to vertebrate animals more often.
1: Yeah, not that the reduced in, not that the reduction in smell is an adaptation to a you know to to make them better at drinking blood but that that might have happened, which led them to not avoiding big mammals as often. Yes. Bumping into them and eventually going, oh, you're full of juices. Oh, tasty.
0: Oh. I Well, well, you know, I was drinking from the corpses, but wouldn't you know it, these over here already have some blood in them. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a fascinating connection. Isn't that cool? Oh, neat. (laughs) Now, in the case of arthropods, like I said, it's fun because there's many different possible avenues, and they've probably all been taken. Bats are tricky because, as far as we can tell, there has only ever been one origination of vampirism in bats. All the vampire bats are closely related, seemingly descended from the same ancestors. This only happened once. I've seen lots of discussion trying to deduce how did vampirism in bats come about. Now, the short answer is we don't know. Bats, as we discussed in episode 59, do not have a good fossil record to give us these answers. It's it's so odd to have such mystery in bat (laughs) evolution. (laughs) So there have been many suggestions, basically all the same ones we just discussed. Mm -hmm. Fruit eating, many bats are fruit eaters. Insect eating, near large vertebrates or even on them. Yeah, yeah. Thinking about the oxpeckers again, which are feeding on parasites on big animals and then occasionally getting some blood from the wounds, and maybe adapting to being better at finding that extra nutrition. Certainly a way bats could have gone. Another suggestion is that they may have started as predators of small animals, right? Hunting little animals in trees and stuff, and then transitioned to quote grazing on larger animals. Yeah. You know, taking little bites every now and then to supplement the diet, and then that might lead to a habit of true blood feeding. But the big issue that a lot of researchers will bring up is that lots of bats are fruit eaters, and lots of bats are are insect eaters, and there are a bunch that are carnivorous. If these are the avenues that bats might have taken, why did it only happen once? Yeah, why, have, why do each of the groups not have their own vampire. Yes. Was there something special about the ancestors of these bats that led to this evolution? I did find an article by Darren Naish on tetrapod zoology from several years ago where he suggested that the answer might be nectar-eating. He points out that there are a bunch of bats around today that feed on nectar, but will also occasionally eat insects,
2: Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. which could potentially give you adaptations for eating fluids, nectar from plants, and the proximity to big animals that comes with hunting bugs in the same spaces. And sharp teeth. And sharp teeth, and the ability to digest animal matter. It could be that it was some bats that were doing a combo of things that led to the special circumstances to develop into vampire bats. It's always such an odd
1: scenario when we come across a group like this where i mean there's not like a ton of species of vampire bats but the common vampire bat is common like it oh yeah it widespread. is widespread very widespread it is very numerous so it is doing quite well and they have a you know not ridiculously lengthy history but you know a couple million years and multiple fossil species so they are a decently successful group you know a, a pro- prolific group And whenever I see a situation like that where none of the other bats, none of the other bat groups have done this, the question comes to mind of, is this just a very difficult thing to do evolutionarily? Like, Mm -hmm. a lot of things needed to line up, and you needed to happen to just have the right adaptations in place that would make you prone to do this or allow you to do it at all. But once you do it, it's great. Right. That if other bats could do it, they would also be successful at it.
0: But the prerequisites... Right, like flight. Yes. Right, flight in general. Hard to... Episode six. Hard to evolve. Hard to achieve proper flight. But if you do it, you apparently become one of the most successful groups of animals on the planet. Yeah.
1: And so I I think I I get that kind of feeling with vampire bats. Yeah.
0: Now, all those are hypotheses. We don't actually know for sure Mm -mm. how vampire bats came about. It is an open question. A couple other fun notes before we wrap up our discussion on the evolution of sanguivary. It has also been noted of returning from sanguivary to other forms of diets. Oh, yeah. This apparently has happened in leeches. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It is hypothesized that leech ancestors were sanguivores, but that have since developed into some species of predators. And one apparently that grazes on the microbes that live on crayfish Yeah, so that's a thing. So being sanguivorous, also you can revert evolutionarily. It has been seen to happen in leeches. I knew of the
1: predatory leeches, Mm
0: because there is
1: an amazing video, horrifying yet amazing, (laughs) of a leech hunting an earthworm. Oh, yeah. It just slurps it up like a strand of spaghetti. And the video very casually describes it crushing it with its powerful esophagus. Mm -hmm. And just like... Wow, it's so weird looking. I didn't realize that that meant it was diverging from ancestral yeah. sanguivery.
0: Apparently so. Fascinating. And one last thing that I, I just... This is a, a great finishing up our evolution discussion, bringing it to the modern times. You were talking about the commonness of the common vampire bat. There are a handful of cases in sanguivores and blood-eating animals where they have really done exceptionally well recently. Yep. And not recently like the last few million years. Very recently. The other two species of vampire bats are pretty rare. The other two species of vampire bats are pretty rare. Desmodus is very common. It feeds on large mammals. So in the last few thousand years this Species of bat has done extremely well because its ecosystem has been invaded by horses and pigs and cows and sheep and goats and all sorts of livestock.
1: Well, why are there suddenly so many more big, large mammals?
0: Somehow, they tr- must have been a land bridge. <laughs> yeah, we filled their area with livestock and now they have tons to feed on. We, we domesticated all of this food
1: for them <laughs> That's and right. took them everywhere.
0: <laughs> yep. Also, I've seen reports of tropical mosquito populations that have expanded along with the expansion of civilizations in the tropics. Yeah. Because they're feeding on people and on the animals that people keep with them. And one other example, possibly the worst example, the genus Cymex bedbugs have been transported all over the world because they get onto clothing and luggage and all sorts of stuff. So as people hop onto boats and hop onto cars and hop onto planes and go to hotels and go to their friends' houses. We have inadvertently made bedbugs some of the most widespread and successful animals on the planet.
1: Yeah, our our international transport systems that we've set up are as much for us as they are for bedbugs, and if you're going by number of individuals, I bet they're more
0: for the bedbugs. bugs. <laughs> <laughs> There was a, in one of the books that I read, there was an anecdotal discussion talking about this phenomenon where the interviewer was talking with a researcher and the researcher was saying probably one of the number one transportation modes for bedbugs is taxis. Yeah. Because people traveling to the airport or whatever will get their luggage and their clothes and put stuff into the taxi. And the interviewer goes, oh yeah, and how often do taxi drivers clean the cabs? and the researcher goes exactly (laughs) (laughs) yeah so yeah we have made a world ripe for certain blood-sucking animals by providing lots of blood to suck and lots of opportunities for expansion and transportation
1: well and sometimes habitats like this is why if you live in an area that is prone to mosquitoes this is one of the big things that they are trying to uh you know, instill the habit in many communities that are threatened by malaria is to not have standing water. Mm-hmm. You know, do you have an old tire sitting in your yard? Tip it over. Right. Is there an old potted plant? Tip it out because that standing water is so ideal for so many mosquitoes. And we create stuff that catches standing water everywhere like just so much of human habitat
0: we're really good at collecting water we
1: just have it everywhere and so we also are making the habitat
0: we are terraforming it to be parasite friendly in many regards Mm -hmm. so the history of sanguivery, of blood eating goes back hundreds of millions of years many many different independent originations of obligate Sanguivory of occasional sanguivory, permanent blood eaters, temporary blood eaters, big ones, small ones, all sorts of different strategies. This is a fascinating and diverse and surprisingly common, or maybe unsurprisingly common, life strategy that animals have developed. Yeah,
1: we've gone through just about every major group of animals, Mm -hmm. and that's not that's not a
0: coincidence. That's because it's a really good way to be. Yep. So if we left out your favorite blood eater, let us know. Send us comments on the social media or emails or whatever you'd like. And as always, if there's a subject within this episode that you'd like to hear us talk more about in future episodes, we are always open to more episode requests. But speaking of ways to get in touch with us, before we officially wrap up the episode, we have one more thing to do, and it is our patron question. One of the benefits that our supporters can get by subscribing and supporting us on Patreon is the ability to ask questions that we will answer here on the podcast. Will, I have selected a patron question. It doesn't have anything to do with sanguivores, but I selected it now for a reason. (laughs) Please, what is our patron question?
1: Our question is from Zabby, who asks, In regards to the in-Cretaceous extinction event, is it possible to determine what season the asteroid
0: hit the Earth? And can we ever pinpoint the time of day as well? This is a great and timely question. Yes. We actually discussed this in Bonus News, Mm -hmm. which is another one of the Patreon benefits. So if you're a patron, you've heard a little bit of this already. But a study just recently came out narrowing down the time of year that the end-Cretaceous mass extinction asteroid impact happened. This was researched by Robert De Palma et al. in Scientific Reports, on the Tana site in North Dakota, which preserves a deposit of disturbed water that mixed up and buried a bunch of freshwater terrestrial and marine stuff, animals, plants, and buried them all together, seemingly within the short period of time after the asteroid impact at the end of the Cretaceous, and so preserved a snapshot of what the ecosystems looked like at that moment in time. And what the study found is a bunch of lines of evidence indicating that it was late spring, early summer. Because the fish at the site were at a point in their development that we'd expect from late spring, early summer. The alternating bands of develop, like tree rings that you get on fish bones, were in their spring-summer stage. Damage on leaves from insects was high, like we see in spring and summer, and they found fossilized adult mayflies, which emerge to reproduce during the spring and summer. Yeah, which as the name implies. <laughs> <laughs> this also uh, was said in the study to line up with evidence from another site, from an earlier study, that also is interpreted to catch the moments briefly after, the time period shortly after the asteroid impact, and found plants in their summer-ish time growth phases. So this study put together a bunch of different evidences that seem to suggest it was spring-summer when the asteroid hit. Which not only is super cool just for like we can tell the season that this asteroid impact happened Wait, in.
1: Just from a geek out standpoint.
0: But also because there's the implications there that if the northern hemisphere was in spring-summer that spawning season and young development season So the impacts of the extinction may have been augmented in some areas by the fact that the ecosystem was full of young animals Mm. that were suffering the effects of the ecological disaster. Yeah, this could have had a unique effect because of when it was happening. It could give us new
1: info on how to interpret the extinction trends and events that
0: occurred because of this. I suspect that further research on different sites and different organisms might let us even narrow it down even further Probably. to find overlaps. Yeah. You know, this only happens in the spring, but this happens late spring, early summer, so we're here in the late spring. So we could potentially narrow it down even more seasons-wise. Yeah. As far as time of day, that's a bit... I guess what you would need is to have a deposit that you can confirm somehow was deposited within like... An hour or a couple of hours after the impact, which the tannocyte might be, but I'm not sure if that's for sure. And then maybe you could get like, these animals were fossilized in their burrow and these Mm -hmm. appear to be diurnal, so they were sleeping. So maybe it was nighttime or these plant, the flower buds were closed like they do at night. So there are animals and plants that adjust daytime, nighttime modes. Yes. So if you could get a deposit with a confirmed this happened right after the impact, you might be able to get a time of day.
1: Yeah, it's just the main difficulty is finding a site that happens to capture that that almost instantaneous moment Mm -hmm. and one that we can all confirm and agree upon. Right. Captures that moment because that trying to get something that's down to hours Mm-hmm. we don't deal with ours in paleontology basically yeah, ever.
0: That's a very difficult resolution to get.
1: Like, so I, I, I not no, I, this is where I don't know enough. If there was some like chemical reaction that we can confirm when asteroids impact earth, this thing happens right at the instance of impact, like this chemical, you know, or, or physical alteration to the minerals or the, you know, compounds in the soil only happens in that first instance. Or
0: this fossil was buried underneath a chunk of earth that was blasted out by the impact. Yeah. And so obviously this happened right at the moment or something like that. And
1: and even then, because there was that famous person preserved at Pompeii that seemed to have been crushed by a piece of building. But then Mm -hmm. I heard that further evidence showed that that may not have been what, killed the person like right right that that may have happened afterwards it may have had the person may have died and then gotten hit so like even still it's hard to be like yeah did this happen right now or does it look like it happened right now that's a big ask so i i I hesitate to say no we'll never know that because like you pointed out in bonus news we used to say that about the
0: season (laughs) i'm pretty sure when i first read this patron question Mm because this came in uh, a little while ago I vaguely recall reading it and going, nah, the answer, there's no way. Oh, no, we're not going to be able yeah. to know the season. No and no. Moving on.
1: And yet. It's like you mentioned, we used to say the same thing about what color are dinosaurs.
0: Mm-hmm. Just, we won't know that. Well, if we could. Now, as far as detecting time of day, I imagine there'd be tons of evidences for plants and animals mm-hmm, that are mm-hmm. just activity levels, morning versus afternoon versus evening or crepuscular things at twilights. That, uh, that doesn't seem like the hard part.
1: Yeah, no, there's definitely evidence, like physical evidence that you could find based on those things. Uh, I mean, I know that there are plants that close and open their stomata, the openings in their leaves during different times of day. So if you could get a good, well-preserved plant that you could zoom in on, you might be able to find stuff like that. There are physical changes, not just behavioral, but physical changes that happen during the times of day. So it's, but
0: there's probably also chemical changes that some yeah. biochemist could come up with that like react differently yeah, low like, vitamin a levels or some something ridiculous in sunlight and out of sunlight yeah like
1: certainly yeah but man confirming that you have the right fossil site yes that's, for the asteroid impact
0: that's the tough part ugh,
1: that's a that's that's big
0: so and we say that maybe in a couple of years we will be <laughs> we'll have egg on our face <laughs> Maybe, if we say it confidently no we'll never know that that's true surely someone's gonna prove us wrong now that yeah it'll never it'll happen it'll never happen just what no ridiculous kill that dream now all
1: right just we
0: will never know put it on the shelf it's just not put gonna it happen. on the shelf with getting dna from fossils nah. and learning about dinosaur body temperature yeah we're just no. we just these are things we will never know <laughs> future researchers Zabby, thank you for asking that question. Uh, we really appreciate it. Check it out—the asteroid impact research—it's out around the internet. Around it was pretty recent, so it should you still, should still be able to find the news reports about it. Thank you for that question. Thanks to all of our patrons for supporting us on the Patreon. Thanks to Felix for suggesting this episode topic. It was a ton of fun. Oh, this was so much fun. <laughs> Thanks to all of our listeners, all of our requesters, all of our supporters. We greatly appreciate you being part of the Baskin Coil.
1: for making this happen.
0: If you'd like to continue interacting with us, there are a thousand ways to do it. Check the episode description for links to our social medias. We have a Discord server now, which has been up and running and growing, and we've done some fun stuff on there. You can support us by subscribing to us on Patreon with a one-time PayPal donation, by buying some merchandise on Zazzle, where we've got a bunch of cool new art. Uh There's all sorts of ways to do it so please check that out follow those links and perhaps the number one most oft-cited way you can participate in the podcast is to send us requests Mm -hmm. so keep them coming also the rob episode maybe we release episodes every fortnight all of them so stay tuned oh hey next episode is 135 Ah, you know what that means It's plants time. Alley time. Alley time. So stay tuned for some plant discussion next episode. This was a ton of fun. I had a ton of fun learning, being a little bit creeped out by blood eating animals.
1: Like, like I mentioned with leeches, they're so disturbing, like things that feed upon your blood. (laughs) It's just that's just wrong. And it's so cool. It's so it's so awesome and disturbing, and I hate it and I love it. Oh, it's great.
0: Yeah. We hope you enjoyed, as always. Let us know, leave comments, do all the stuff we said before. We're going to go ahead and wrap it up now, and we'll see you soon. Goodbye. Children of the outro, what music they make. <laughs>